This episode of Screen Geeks Radio is sponsored by Audible.com. Try a 14-day trial and get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash screengeeks. What's up, everybody? This is Screen Geeks Radio, episode something or other that I'm going to look up here in a second. I think we're at 144. We'll, we'll find... Yeah, we're at 144. Woohoo! Yay! All right, this is Dave. This is Barry. This is John Travolta. Right on. Sweet. All right, this is going to be a very interesting week. It's going to be a fun week. And, and next week sounds like it's going to be even more fun, but we'll get that get to that one uh, a little bit later. Oh, yeah. Uh, before we can we get into all the fun of the, the films of Gus Van Sant, uh, let's go ahead and talk about what we watched this week. Barry, why don't you kick us off? I uh, watched Death Wish 3, which uh, I've heard is something of a cult film, and I can definitely see why. On one hand, this is a very vile film. Um, it's wall-to-wall with really graphic, hideous violence, even for a movie made in the 80s. Uh, it does have a rape scene and lots of people being uh, who, Who's beaten. on the receiving end of that? That would be Marina Sirtis. Yeah. Counselor Troy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in her film debut. It's a pretty big role. Um, but uh, in any case, I, could under, I understand the cold appeal of this film because really it is kind of like grumpy old men with Uzis because it comes down to Charles Bronson, who I love, but let's face it, he was about 63 when he did this film. Definitely fit, but still way too old to be carrying an action movie. It's It's... Bronson and Martin Balsam, the detective from Psycho, literally with these huge can of machine guns just just wasting just hundreds and hundreds of of knife-wielding 80s thug teens. Um, If that doesn't sound appealing to you, then this movie is not going to work for you. But I got to say, this is... uh, Other than how vile it is, I thoroughly enjoyed this film on a guilty pleasure (laughs) level. It's, uh, It's pretty hilarious. It really is. There's this great scene where... Where Charles Bronson is having this like this this geriatric dinner with his geriatric friends. I mean, they're very old people living in this tenement that's like run by crack crack dealers and killers and and, and gang members. And he goes outside to like mow down, like just literally, like just 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 mow down like a whole like a whole gang. And then he comes back inside for dinner, and they're like, and they're like, oh, thank you, young man. Really appreciate what you're doing to clean up the neighborhood. You know, it's <laughs> it's such it. it you, you really have to see it to believe it. So if you're interested, there's Death Wish 3. Um, I did finally get around to seeing uh, Tyler Perry's For Colored Girls, um, which has a, a most impressive cast. And I got to say, like, um, I'm, one, I'm someone who's always defended Perry's movies in the past. For Colored Girls is easily his best directed film, his best scored movie, his best shot movie, and his best acting movie. Um, yet it is also his worst movie. And for really? two, two very big reasons. One, the screenplay. Two, the execution. Um, the short version of the story is that this is based on a really profound piece of theater in which it was called a choreo poem. What's that? It's it's a poem set to choreography. It's basically these these African American women expressing themselves, and you know it's all about you know empowerment and dealing with 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 pain and suffering and whatnot. Um, I, you know when when it's done on stage, it's these women you know delivering these 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 passages of poetry, these monologues that are essentially poems. The movie what what Perry did was he wrote a story around the poems. Um, so in one hand, you've got a bad Tyler Perry movie, a really bad Tyler Perry movie, complete with, let's see, HIV, date rape, um, kids being thrown out of a window, um, drugs, uh, a, a closeted gay husband, like all the, you know, all, all the highlights of, of Tyler Perry because, you know, his movies are full of melodrama. So you've got all that. But then, like, for no reason at all, the characters, the women specifically, will break out into poetry. Um, he should have picked one or the other. 
because he clearly wanted to do a film version of the play, which I think would have been fine. It would have been really daring and weird, but it would have been fine. Or he maybe he should have just dropped it and just said inspired by the play and did you know a movie that's just like you know strictly a Tyler Perry film. But he goes back and forth, and it's awful, Dave. It is awful. Um, the performances cannot be faulted other than Tandy Newton, who is actually quite terrible in this movie. And I'm, it shocks me to say that because I love Tandy Newton. Um, but Anika Noni Rose, Whoopi Goldberg, um, Kerry Washington. There are so many great performances in this movie, but they're just they're surrounded by a terrible, terrible screenplay. Um, <sighs> there are so many bad scenes in this movie. And, and one thing that Perry doesn't understand, I mean, the, the play itself was only 90 minutes. The movie is over two hours long. <laughs> And the, the play climaxed with the scene, basically with a woman describing how her husband drew, threw her two children out the window, which is a horrible, horrifying thing, you know, and on stage it's especially affecting. The movie shows it. The movie shows it, and it's only 40 minutes into the movie. Um, I mean, I think Perry has to understand, when you throw two children out a four-story window and they die, that's called a climax. That can't be like the beginning of the film, just getting things warmed up. Um, it is a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful film. It is uh, honestly, it's one of the worst films I think I've ever seen, because the potential is there. Like everything in the movie works except for the script and the execution, and that's what makes it a truly, truly dreadful film. This this, is, this sounds like a ghetto version of the vagina monologues. Not a bad way of putting it. I mean, it's it's kind of like it's a, it's a mixture of waiting to exhale, a typical Tyler Perry movie, and if they made a movie version out of the Janet Jackson song, "What Have You Done for Me Lately." That's the nice. Movie. So yeah, for color, for color girls, like I can't fault it in terms of performances because all the actresses they act their hearts out and they do a fine fine job. But Perry, I mean, he his his take on it is completely wrong headed. There's a rape scene in this movie that's intercut with the worst opera scene you've ever seen. It's somewhere between tacky, atrocious, appalling, and campy all at the same time. Um, terrible film. Terrible film. Um, and then the other film I want to talk about, I'll wait till afterwards we talk about our the kind of the big films we saw this week. So I mean, okay. I, I saw Kevin's, oh, I, call, I saw Kevin Smith's Red State, but I'll, I'll I'll wait to talk about that one. Okay, right on. All right, Ethan, why don't you go next, sir? I uh, on Monday attended the Canadian premiere of Hobo with a Shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a little on the fence about this movie because it's very entertaining, but at the same time, and I'm aware this is a silly thing to criticize a grindhouse film for, but it's incredibly abrasive. <laughs> like, it's not like something like Piranha, which is like super goofy. It's like a lot of this movie is like. That's like probably like 90% of the sound design of the film. So. <laughs> What, what, but, I'm curious, what did you expect from a film called Hobo with a Shotgun? Well, I was almost expecting it would be sort of more like in that kind of Piranha 3D kind of territory where it's like really goofy, but it's, like it is very, yeah, it's very straight up a Grindhouse movie. And again, I, it was entertaining. I'm not really cr- criticizing it too much for that. But uh, actually, the thing is, though, it's interesting because Rutger Hauer is actually gives like a great performance. And I thought, I thought he, he found the line between playing it straight but not playing it too seriously just perfectly so it's like worth seeing it for him and uh as a work of canadian cinema i guess it's pretty interesting because the most canadian thing about it i guess would be the fact that the one two of the bad guys use hockey skates in the scene <laughs> okay and also the end credits uses the theme song from the classic canadian uh animated cartoon the raccoons 
So that was a pretty inspired touch. And uh, it's also filmed in Nova Scotia, which isn't really known for its grindhouse cinema. So that was pretty interesting. And uh, I, I wanted to write a review for this movie. But the thing is, I was so busy during the week that by the time I got, I was available to do it. I just wasn't as fresh in my mind as I liked. So I'm sorry I didn't write a review. But there's actually a lot more I'd like to get into with this film. But it's, it is interesting. I, I'd, I'd, I'd say it's fun. It's worth seeing. So it's worth seeing if you're a fan of Rucker Hauer? Yeah, and, and Grindhouse Cinema in general. Cool. Actually, one thing I wanted to mention in this movie that I appreciated about it is it does kill kids. Ah, all right then. It's not something you see every day in film. Now, Ethan, I'm not familiar with the raccoons. Am I missing out? You got to check that shit out, Barry. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, like, I imagine like an animated like we have a show that was really popular in the '80s called The Littles. I mean, is it like oh that? I mean, is it like raccoons like interacting with kids? I mean, what well, what is the raccoon? No, it's it's like it's like a bunch of talking raccoons. They're basically as people, you know, oh, but okay. just the raccoons instead. It's like what a regular like animated show would be, but it kind of went. It took a lot of social issues. It talked about a lot of those like pollution, and I remember one episode about smoking. So, you know, it was a pretty. Uh, topical show wow so it's like the wind of the willows with raccoons yeah huh all right then Let's see if i could find that that sounds oh. good all right what else did you see sir i uh inspired by our show's topic i wanted to finally check out a film from one of the directors that inspired gus van sant so i watched bella tar's workmeister harmonies for the first time are you guys uh familiar with uh, uh bella tar no no uh, this guy was very much an inspiration to uh, his death trilogy, like the Jerry, Last Days, Elephant. Like So instantly from that, I, I imagine you could assume what stylistically this movie is like. Okay. It's a lot of like long takes, and it's, it is an incredibly beautiful film. It's about this, it's uh, from, it's Hungarian. It's about this like young factory worker in this town, and uh, a circus comes in, and they have this giant, like, uh, statue of a whale and then like everyone in the town eventually goes insane because of the circus and there's all these all this long shots in it that are so like just beautifully composed and the movie is very much of kind of it kind of gets very violent towards the end but is like so humane and i yeah it's very it's a kind of a hard movie to describe i'd say just watch it it's just two and a half hours of like pure cinematic poetry i know that's an incredibly cheesy thing to say but it oh, applies. If, if, if the shoe fits, it sounds great. Yeah, and uh, last thing, I rewatched The Jerk. Nice. Which, uh, it's funny, I saw this movie the first time a few years ago, and I remember not finding it that funny, but rewatching it, it, it is amazing. I actually wrote like, about The Jerk for my paper about uh, modern-day minstrel shows. Anyway. My, my favorite scene, I think the, the joke, I don't know, the, the, the one that kills me the most is when... Uh, Steve Martin works as a weight guesser at the circus. For some reason, that just that just makes me howl. I don't know quite what it is, but well, what I wrote about my paper, for what it's worth, is, is uh, I actually defend this movie and Silver Street because I think they're really examples where, unlike a lot of these movies, where they use aspects of like you know the, these old these old racist jokes that just has like easy punchlines like the way for example the dukes of hazard has the duke boys in blackface at one point and they pull up to a gangster neighborhood and they not only do the gangsters see that they're in blackface but there's a confederate flag on their car ha ha you know stupid 
But like with the jerk, you know, it opens up where, you know, it's like I was born a poor black child and you see Steve Martin, you know, dancing and shucking and jiving on the porch along with the rest of his African-American family. And like it may be offensive for just a second until you see the approach that the movie takes, which is really wonderful. And it's really very ahead of its time. They love him. They're a good family. They are the smartest people in the freaking movie. And the love they feel for him, like like the, the the joke isn't that he's white. The joke is that he has this form of arrested development, and he's like a full grown man living at the house. That's what's funny, and it's strange how touching those scenes are with the family, which is so bizarre. Because like clap along with because, the music. Yeah, because yeah, good. He has no rhythm. Yeah, because like the movie. I mean, they could totally you know this is the seventies before things were more politically correct. They could have made you know stupid jokes. You know, made it totally about the race car. But no, like the movie like transcends that, and it's about how Nathan. Was it Naven Johnson? How, I mean, he's just you know he he's so much more comfortable in this in this very limited world that he's in. But even his family wants him to get the heck out of the house. So, and it's a big step for him when he's like just a few feet away from the house. And that's like his first big steps of the journey. So, anyway, the another small another small joke I love is when he's like, um, "Yep, this is the best pizza in the cup in a cup in the county." It's shut down the other pizza in a cup guy. People travel all, all over the world to get this pizza in the cup. I, I don't know. Just stuff like that kills me. I do love his first girlfriend so much. The the one in like black leather chains. I think she was my favorite. Yeah. Great film. <laughs> nice. Yeah, very good film. Very good. So you didn't get to go see I Saw the Devil yet? Uh, it opens next week. It opens next week. Okay, cool. Okay. Did you want to talk about it? No, now, no, or no, no. I want to wait till Ethan sees it. Cause... Okay. Okay. Well, then I'll, I'll talk about Red State. I thought I thought we'd just talk about all the the, the big ones that we saw. Um, I'll, I'll just briefly say with Red State, um, I, I found this to be a very haunting film, very powerful movie. It's not perfect. Um, there are aspects of Kevin Smith that you're familiar with that kind of leak into the film that I don't, don't think are totally necessary. Um, but this is going to be a very controversial movie. It's extremely violent. Um, but it's as far as being a horror film goes, and it, yes, it certainly is a horror film. Um, there are no jump cuts. There are no like cheap scares. But there are scenes in it that I thought were truly terrifying, and I felt extremely uncomfortable watching. Uh, members of the audience. I mean, the, the, there are certain scenes in the film where the audience just got deathly quiet, which is really saying something because it was a very rowdy crowd. Um, Michael Parks' performance in the lead role, if it's not up for Academy Award consideration at the end of the year, I'd be very surprised because that, that's how good he is. It's amazing. Melissa Leo is, is incredible in the film too. John Goodman is as good as you'd hope. He, uh, yes! Goodman, you know, Goodman, is, his, his role is almost thankless, honestly, because like he's got more exposition than anybody in the cast, but he does a fine job with it because he's, he's John Goodman. He could do just about anything. Um, the wrap-up scene at the end, it has a, without, this is not spoiler territory, but like it has a wrap-up scene, kind of like the wrap-up scene in Psycho, where it's people kind of explaining what we just saw. Um, it's very jokey and tongue-in-cheek, and it almost feels like Smith is trying to like lay on layers of satire and kind of like, kind of give us something to laugh at after almost like an hour of straight bloodshed. I'm not sure that was necessary, but I think the final, final scene of the movie is great. Um... Smith has talked about, he's certainly talked about at the Q&A, um, about cutting the film down a little bit shorter. I wouldn't have minded it being longer because the scene in question that he cut, of course, is the great monologue that uh, that Parks gives in the film, which is a heck of a scene. Um, to respond to some of the critics, uh, particularly the ones that, have, that are really hard on the film, um, 
A number of them said they thought this was particularly lazy filmmaking. And to that I say, I really wish that the filmmakers of the Saw series would exhibit this kind of laziness because this is the best directed film Smith I think has ever made. I don't think it's I don't think it's his best film, but I think it's certainly his best directed film, um, which is and I do mean that as high praise because he does a terrific job. About an hour into the movie, I forgot who the writer and the director was. This is nothing like he's done before, and I had to I had to keep reminding myself that this is the VSQ guy. Um, I, I, I very much like this film a lot. Um, it's uh, it really has stayed with me. It, it, it haunted me for days after I saw it initially, and it, it was such a relief to have the Q and A afterwards because honestly, I mean, I was going to walk out of the theater feeling completely numb by it. Um, because you know, no question, there there are aspects of, of dark humor in this, but I think this for me this is this is what a hardcore horror movie can be. Um, but anyway, Smith said a lot of terrific stuff uh, at the at the Q and A, which I you know we don't need to need to get. But into. the Q and A was good. The Q and A was terrific. So was it more about the movie or his penis? It was. Uh, <laughs> um, it was. It was about where he is as a director and why he's going to walk away from directing after hit somebody. Essentially, he talked about that at length, which was it was really great to hear that from him about um, how he really feels like you know his obviously some of the strongest work of his career was very early on because he was very young and passionate then and he's at a point where he just doesn't feel like um, he has a lot of other stories to tell um, that he's going to put everything he has as a director and as a writer into Hit Somebody which he feels could be like his magnum opus his best film and that Red State was kind of the movie leading towards that I mean I think what we're all hoping is that like you know he'll feel so re-energized from making these two films that are supposed to be so good that he'll keep going um, but he insists that, like, he loves the conversation he can have with audiences so much more than actually making these films, which is why he feels it's time to wrap it up and not become a joke. And he mentioned, I mean, he mentioned Spielberg, and and he actually mentioned Spielberg in a good way. He says, you know, I'd rather, you know, be Spielberg and walk away than be Spielberg and, you know, make movies that are, you know, going to hurt the legacy. When he, you know, he has a point there. Um, no, honestly, like it was better than his last two concert films. Uh, he spoke for about an hour and a half. He answered the questions quickly and smartly, and uh, I've worked on all sorts of sound bites that he gave that are really terrific. Um, it wasn't him just like answering one question for 90 minutes. I mean, he answered about maybe 40 questions in 90 minutes. I mean, he did a terrific job. And uh, cool. And he was he looked healthy, and he was clearly not. Uh, he was clearly sober when he did the Q and A. And I, you know, I know that that may sound like a backhanded thing to say, but I mean, it, it was evident that he was really on his mark and was really responsive to how the audience had thought of the film. He talked about uh, actually showing the film to the Phelps family. Um, because uh, I, I was actually expecting picketers at, at, the, at the screening. And no, there were no picketers, but it's because they already showed up at the Kansas City screening just, I think, like the week before. And apparently, according to Smith, he, um, he decided, what would Jesus do in this case? Um, because he really does believe that this film uh, is not only a reflection of his frustrations with the Christian church, but his, uh, you know, it's, it's a movie that's, that's an affirmation of his faith. Um, so he said what he did was he gave the Phelps family tickets to see the film. And they all came in. And after about 20 minutes, they all walked out. And I guess as you and I told you this, Dave, as he as uh, as the Phelps daughter walked out of the theater, she said, you know, I'm sorry, but like we think your film is filthy and we don't want to watch it. This is a gift from us. And she handed him a poster. She walks out of the theater. He looks at the poster and it said, God hates fags and red state. So 
got to hand it to those Phelps family. They are at least, if nothing else, consistent. But uh, And the film is, I mean, yes, it is certainly an attack on the Phelps family. It is a very, very controversial look at, at the aspects of uh, fundamentalist Christianity that make atheists and believers really angry and really frustrated. This movie is going to cause a lot of, I think, really solid conversations when it's over because it's one of those films that is a real conversation piece. And moreover, it's a solid, solid movie. I can't imagine anybody walking out of this film thinking that it's lazy or like a hack movie. I mean, this is this is a great independent film. I really do think so. I think the Phelps family just walked out because there's no Jay and Silent Bob cameo. And <laughs> Smith so talked about that because uh, apparently Muse wanted to be in the movie. Um, Jason Muse wanted to be one of the ATF agents at the end of the at the end of the film, and and apparently Smith. Um, was telling him like no man like they're gonna see you and they're gonna be like oh there he is it's Jason, Jason Mewes and Mewes said like man I could just get shot really quick and and, uh, and and Smith said like man you know that if I shot you as you would like go down you'd be like snoot to the booch ah! you know so like obviously it wouldn't work so wow that's awesome so wait, so wait, none of the Q&A was about his dogs or bowel movements or no no it was uh, it was not one- gonna go <laughs> no, it was terrific. I mean, no, he he said some things that I certainly can't mention. The one thing I, I told Dave that he talked about is mentioned about his wife. Um, of course, you know he's always he's always very open about his bedroom activities with his wife, and it was actually one of the bigger laughs of the night. Um, yeah, but uh, no. Cool. All right, well, let me go ahead and talk about what I watched real quick. Yes, too. please. please. Um, I I saw. I'll do the two documentaries I saw first. Um, I watched Super Size Me finally. Phenom- that was a great documentary. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it wasn't, you know, it was it was a message film and it wasn't, mm-hmm. but it was really just like, okay, let's see what happens if I eat McDonald's so much. And it's like, you've gained twelve pounds in a week. How in the? I love the the reaction from the trainer guys. Like, no, that can't be right. That can't, let's reset everything from zero. Holy crap! And it was really eye opening. And and yeah, that was a phenomenal film. I don't know. I haven't seen the rest of his work, but I really dug it. Uh, I hate Morgan Spurlock Why so do you much. Hate Morgan Spurlock. <laughs> Why don't you like? I him? just, I just find him so smug. And I think he's like smug. At least someone like you know Bill Maher. I love Bill Maher. Bill Maher is smug, but he acknowledges it. It's like Morgan Spurlock is like, I'm just an average guy. I'm not smug, and he's like the smuggest person ever. He just, he drives me nuts. And I think he's a bad filmmaker as well. Like, I think Super Size Me has about 20 minutes of content that he just, he basically just makes the same point like over and over and over like i just it's the only one of his i've seen so maybe his other work will blow my mind yeah, but yeah f that guy all right then don't, don't hold back ethan just don't 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 hold back that's all i ask uh, i then also watched freakonomics uh, which is on watch instantly which if you're like a math or statistics nerd is a great documentary actually it, it's a great documentary no matter what because essentially what it does is is the whole point of freakonomics is looking at the true reasons behind why things happen uh, from a t- statistical standpoint, from proving things with mathematics and disproving some things, and it was that one was I, it, I will absolutely agree that that blew super sized me out of the water because, it, and even though it did have a Morgan Spurlock bit in it, but oh well, you'll survive. Um, but it, it took some very interesting looks at cheating, like you know, like the the context of cheating in society, hmm. and the example they use is sumo wrestling of all things. And it's just you just sit there like sumo wrestling, what? and you're you're captivated for the twenty thirty minutes that they're talking about it. They talk about can you bribe children to do better in school? <laughs> um, what was the other one? They're, they're the most fascinating and uh, the what the spot that I think would cause the most controversy is when they take a look at the sudden drop in crime rate from about eighty nine on. Hmm. Um, I really don't want to ruin it, 
but they they come to a very shocking conclusion that has moral implications behind it. And regardless of where you stand on this incredibly divisive issue in the country, which I think I can probably just about give away that it was based in the 70s, um, there's no doubting the data that's there, which really begs a lot more questions from a societal and ethical standpoint. It it, it was wonderful. Mm. I loved it. Uh, and then finally, I saw The Man from Nowhere, which is a Korean another Korean film. It's revenge. not revenge. It's not, it is and it isn't. It, it's definitely more along the lines of Taken, like a lot of people have been saying, and that it's not this guy who's like, screw the world, I'm going to give it all up to reve- avenge this person's death. No, it's this guy who's a, a pawn shop broker who has this little girl who comes by all the time, and they're they're becoming friends, and you know he gives her a couple bucks, and she puts music on her MP3 player for him to listen to, and they just kind of have this little give and take. And she comes from a broken home, to say the least. Doesn't know who her dad is. Her mom's pretty much a stripper slash crack whore. Mom steals drugs from a drug kingpin. So the kingpin kidnaps both of them and essentially ropes the guy into it. And we find out that he's obviously more than you think. And then the terror, then Taken happens and he kills half of Korea. But I'm not going to end it. <laughs> I, I'm, that, that's, that's the storyline, essentially. Okay. Uh, it has probably the best knife fight I've ever seen in a film. It wow. is astounding. Like it, It's like if you had a, a sword fight just that close up. Cool. It was very well done. And the end of the film actually had me borderline... It had me in tears and was almost like bawling like a little kid. It was it was absolutely wonderful. Like Compared to you know the Vengeance trilogy and I Saw the Devil and stuff like that, this has like sunshine and puppy dogs of an ending. Now, granted, that's compared to those movies. It still isn't the happiest of endings, but it's still really touching and very good. Really enjoyed it. Do Korean filmmakers ever make wacky romantic comedies? That's my question. Um, <laughs> the guy who did what Park Chan Wook did. What was it called? Uh, the I'm good, a cyborg. The bad, the no, I'm oh. a cyborg, and that's okay, or something like that. Or okay, and then you have the good, bad, and weird, and there, there's stuff out there. Okay, but, just yeah. curious. Well, like, it's like it's like a lot of people assume that Asian movies are only like kung fu. <laughs> Right, which is not the case at all. No, that's absolutely true. Um, but I'm just I'm thinking back to like, because I mean, I love films by Korean filmmakers. I mean, I love The Host and I loved uh, A Tale of Two Sisters, and you know. But but I'm like, I'm trying to think like, have they ever done like a like a what was like a uh, Last Life in the Universe Korean? Check that. I don't know. I, I have no idea. Oh, uh, we're I'm not gonna look that up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, just pontificating about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think you would dig the man from nowhere cuz I know that like the I know old boy was really tough for you to watch. Yes, it was. And this is definitely a lighter film. It, it's definitely much more of a straight ahead action film, but it's definitely, you know, it's bloody, it's gory, it's actiony. It's one once I've got the the Blu-ray on the way, so I'll let you borrow it when it comes in. And, Thank you. I'd like to see it. Yes. So let's go ahead and talk about what hit theaters this weekend. Uh, Zack Snyder's latest magnum opus, Sucker Punch, with a cast of fine actresses as well as uh, Scott Glenn. Slumming it. Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2, Roderick Rules, mm-hmm. with Steve Zahn. And in limited release, you have the new film by Julian Schnabel, Mural, starring uh, Frida Pinto, which is very controversial and slowly uh, unfolding uh, across the states. Um, that's it. All right. Did anyone see any of these? I am excited to see Sucker Punch on Tuesday. Ah. Are you? The reviews I've it, been reading. Uh, the reviews make me excited to see it. To be honest. Yeah, there's there's two. Let's see here. Um, Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch is a movie so terrible that it retroactively makes his entire body of work worse. Uh, <laughs> what's the other one? Oh yeah, I love the beginning of this one. Have you ever wondered what goes on in the mind of a stripper as she sashays her tight little booty up on stage in front of luring old men and rowdy frat boys? Me neither. But obviously Zack Snyder does. 
I read uh, Devin Faraci's review, and he made some statements in a minute that probably will offend me once I've actually seen the movie. But he actually compared elements of it to like Jodorowsky, and I'm like, interesting. Mm. It's not like I mean, it sounds like a, a humongous train wreck. That's why I want to see it, but yeah, you know. Well, I've, uh, my, my, my sister-in-law, Dana, saw the film. She called me the other day because she said that uh, her boyfriend had her sit down and watch 300, so like she knew kind of what she was in for stylistically. And Dana, and she made a point to tell me this. She's like, Barry, you know me. You know, It's not just you know the brother-in-law, sister-in-law thing, but you've known me for a number of years, and like you know that I like just about everything. And she's like, I hated this movie. I hated, <laughs> hated Sucker Punch. So... You know, so my sister-in-law did not like Sucker Punch. So for me, that's like, hmm. You know, I, I will probably catch it when it hits the Chief Theater. This is one I might actively wa- wait to see because I'm not going to spend even a full matinee price on this. Yeah, I don't know when I'm seeing it, but uh, kind of like Ethan, I am very curious to see it just because the reviews are you know, kind of same thing. Like I've read some of the reviews. It's like, wow, this this sounds wrong-headed in interesting ways. Yes. So Yes. Oh and because I, I really don't like Mr. Snyder, I, you know, I don't know. It's like, I hate to even sound like that because it's not like I'm rooting for him to fail. I would love for him to make a great film. But you know what? If if this movie is such a disaster, it causes, you know, the people of Warner Brothers to go, maybe we should rethink this whole Superman project and so be it. Huh. <laughs> yes, we need to reboot it with Richard Pryor. Uh <laughs> There you go. I, I bumped into an old review of Superman 3 the other day. I bought a Starlog issue, and uh, like the whole letter section was just people responding to Superman 3. And one of the first ones, they all hated it. Um, I, I know, I know. Well, they, well, you know, it's interesting because it was such a hit, too, in 1983. But anyway, like the first review that, that they, they published was a guy saying, what's the difference between Superman 3 and the Titanic? The Titanic had a band. Wow. Yeah. Okay, then. Wow. Dang. <laughs> All right, you well, should see me right now. <laughs> Are you wearing pants? No, but no, my eye is no, bulging. No. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and talk about what's hitting home video this weekend. This week, thank you for saying home video. You don't hear that a lot. Uh, home video this week, you've got uh, the acclaimed Tangled, which I'm told I need to see that film. It's on the way. My copy's on its way. It's made about $180 million last year. Pretty big hit. Yeah, it, it didn't make its budget back, though. It didn't make its no, budget back? Ah. I'm really hoping. Well, go ahead. We'll we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. That sucks because well, let's talk about it for a second because okay. like Disney, you know, they they've been trying to get back to traditionally animated movies, and apparently this is the movie that really could do it, and it didn't make its budget. It didn't no. because it made a lot more money than than the Princess and the Frog did. Yeah, I think the budget was like two, two hundred million dollars for yeah. this film. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I posted up a Q and A Q&A with Glenn Keane on Friday, that I, the, the virtual roundtable I got to get in on. And, like, the love and attention that went into this movie, like, this, beyond just the fact of, you know, just because someone works hard doesn't mean it's a good movie, but it just magnifies how good this movie is, I think. Uh, the music, I, I will still say, is weak, but the rest of the film is actually pretty stinking good. And, I'm, I mean, I got the 3D Blu-ray set, like, the four-disc set, because it was cheaper, mm-hmm. but I'm, I can't wait to pop it in and watch it again. It's so good. So good. I'm so disappointed that it didn't I'm hoping it finds even. its audience on home video. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. As my voice cracks. <laughs> uh, one of our favorite films from last year, one of the great films of 2010, Darren Aronofsky's masterpiece, Black Swan. Uh, should I say masterpiece? Because I still like Requiem for a Dream a little bit better. It's kind of, it's kind of a big word, too. It the, is. The M-bomb. It is. You know, I've, it yeah. is a fine, fine I film. I should avoid that. You're right. No, but I, yeah, I, I love Black Swan. Can you even Swan. say it's a great film? Yes. Oh, yeah, terrific film. Uh, Mad Men, season four. Uh, Cecil B. I also said, almost said Cecil B. Demented. Cecil B. DeMille's <laughs> The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston and a cast of famous people. This two-disc special edition could yeah. be good. Yeah, I like the film. I like the film. Uh, Doug Lemon's uh, 
Fair Game, starring Sean Penn and Naomi Watts. Fine film, just don't expect an action movie. Dennis the Menace, season one, the original Jay, Jay North. North. Yeah, wow. I, I Remember like, watching that on Nick at Night? Yeah, that's one I watched. I just yeah. love this show. I'm amazed that it had never been released on DVD until now. So there you go, Dennis the Menace. All Good Things, the other film starring Ryan Gosling that came out last year, starring Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. For it, it's quite good. Um, their views weren't, weren't like, you know, of the blue Valentine caliber, but apparently it's quite good. Criterion is releasing Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy, starring Jim Broadbent. It's supposed to be one of the best films of 99. Shame on me. I have not seen this film yet. Uh, well, I haven't either, and I'm a okay. huge Mike Lee fan. Yeah, so. yeah. That I, I've heard nothing but terrific things about this movie, so I need to see this thing stat. On Blu-ray, you've got Soylent Green. Soylent Green is people. Sorry, spoiler. Dude. Uh, sorry. No, I'm kidding. It's it, it, Charlton Heston, Edward G. Robinson. See it. Classic film. Uh, Made in Dagenham. This is with Bob Hoskins and Miranda Richardson. Uh, it was up for, well, supposed to be up for a bunch of Oscars last year, and it wasn't. The Resident, starring Hilary Swank, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, and Christopher Lee. This is like the first new film from the revamped Hammer films. That's actually gotten some good reviews. On Blu-ray, this is puzzling to me. Teen Wolf. <laughs> it's just going to make all that fur look so fake up close, but what the heck, I like Teen Wolf. Also on Blu-ray, Awakenings, Penny Marshall's masterpiece. Eh. Uh, another, big, uh, another big word. Another big word. Because, it's a good film, though. Because big. I mean, is it better than big? I don't know. But it's a great film. Uh, Against All Odds, starring Jeff Bridges and James Woods. Definitely worth seeing just to see those two guys together. Uh, Criterion is releasing The Mikado. Classic, classic film. And then finally, Francis Ford Coppola's second film. Everybody thinks this is his first film. No, no, no. His first film is called Tonight for Sure, which is a porn film. Uh, his first... Really? Yeah. T- <laughs> Tonight for Sure. Yeah. Although I, apparently it's like the worst and most pretentious and boring porn movie ever. I've never seen it. Um, but his first film released theatrically. But Everybody says this is his first movie. The Roger Corman produced Dementia 13. Now available on Blu-ray. Very cool. There you go. All right. Well, shall we move on to some news? Yes. All right. I guess well, I, I, it's you and me this week, so I guess we can just rapid fire back and forth. All right. Um, I guess I'll start off with the Captain America trailer. May as well start off with the biggie. Um, <laughs> what, uh, could, wow. I could hear the eyes in, in, in Ethan's skull just rolling, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think the trailer actually made the film look more promising. I'm not saying it's going to be good. But it's got to be better than the 1990 film, which is getting a director's cut release on Blu-ray. And they're screening, and they're screening at Fantasia in Montreal this summer. So the original cut, or I might, the- I might see the uh, director's cut, so I might see it on the big screen. Wow, wow. <laughs> that is really something. That's nuts. <laughs> You're yeah. not a fan of the trailer, I'm telling Barry. No, I'm not. the The Benjamin Button effects I thought were just really, really corny, and yeah. I'm starting to feel kind of snobby about it. Like, like I'm kind of burnt down on all the comic book movies coming out this year. I don't know. Yeah, I like all the highbrow cinema, like Wall Street 2 and Robin Hood. <laughs> we got to stick to that. I couldn't have said it better myself, Ethan. Thank you. That is such a good point. Dang. What's better yet is the recut version of the trailer. Actually, I guess it's the same cut of the trailer, but with the uh, the Team America music in it. It's hilarious. Yeah, apparently I need to see this, so I will check that out. Remind me after we quit recording, I'll show it to you. It's, okay. it's pretty flipping hilarious. Well, the Cannes Film Festival is getting interesting. Apparently, the Tree of Life is locked in. We don't know if it's going to be in the official runner-up, which is to say we don't know if it's in the official lineup, excuse me, um, and that it'll be up for some prizes or if it's just going to be out of competition. But in any case, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life set in stone at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, Wong Kar Wise, unfortunately, his new film, The Grandmasters, was not going to be finished in time. We were, there was a lot of speculation about that. It's still filming. Michael Haneke's new film, Love, 
um, is a maybe, and this is why. This is really intriguing. It's a 40-day shoot for the film that began in February. He might be able to pull it off and get it together in time for the Cannes Film Festival, but it's kind of up in the air. Um, we know for sure um, Locked that are going to be playing at the Cannes Film Festival, whether in competition or out of competition, Gus Van Sant's Restless, Lars von Trier's Melancholia, and Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris, which is opening the festival. Cool. I heard Cronenberg's uh, new movie. It was like going to, but yeah, same thing as like the Wong Kar Wai thing. It's not going to be done in time. Yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame because uh, I mean, I can't imagine a movie about Freud and, and Young not being just thrilling and amazing. So, but all right then. Uh, you know, I'm just going to talk about the other two trailers that I've got out of the way because uh, one's really good and one is, <laughs> is going to be such dumb fun. Uh, first off is Takeshi Miyake's Thirteen Assassins, which. We, we were discussing this earlier. You know, he, he has... Miyake is an extreme filmmaker, I think it's fair to say, to be very kind. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I'd and say be, that. Yeah, understating things. Yeah. Uh, I think this looks like a pretty stinking interesting film. It, the, the scope and... The, yeah, just the actual just scope and, and grandeur of this thing is on a level that he hasn't done yet. Yeah. Yeah, this is... I mean, on one hand, I could say this is the movie that, like, for all the 13-year-old boys who didn't... Who weren't interested in watching the Seven Samurai because it was in black and white and too long? This is their movie. This kind of it does kind of it, <laughs> it, it does kind of look like that. It yeah. looks a lot like that. But but no, you're absolutely right, Dave. And we should give credit where credit is due. I mean, you know, he's made Mickey has made films that are incredibly low budget and some could say like in some cases like really tacky and cheap. This is not one of them. This looks like a huge, massive scale film. Like he had a real budget, and he makes films so often, so frequently. I think he makes like something like seven movies a year. Clearly, he's been building up to a film of this of this uh, scope. Yes, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got Paul What Script Anderson's The Three Musketeers trailer. Mm. Um, Steph was in here when we watched it, and she's like, "You mean I saw a trailer before you did?" And she brings up a good point. It, it looks like dumb fun. Like, gloriously awful fun. Yeah, well, I, I think it, you know, I mean, for a film like this, obviously we want it to be just entertaining. You know, if it could be on the level of the 1990, was it 93 version? With, the, with the Disney Keith one? Sutherland. Yeah, the, if it's even on that level, <laughs> fine. Um, no, it, it looks fine. It well, it does it, have Ray Stevenson and Till Schweiger, so that that could lead to the to the the, the butt kicking factor. Yes, and Mrs. What's Grip Anderson, uh, the lovely Mila Jovovich, has a role in the film. Um, no, it looks fine for what it is. I mean, I, I I can't say I expect a lot going in, but it doesn't look. It is made by Summit. <laughs> it doesn't. Well, yeah, there. But you know, it doesn't look like Resident Evil Four or anything. Yeah, well, so. there's plenty of 3D crap jumping out. You can tell just by the trailer. That's true. Yeah, it is Three Musketeers in 3D. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That should be interesting. All right. What do you got, sir? Well, a film that was supposed to open up in just a few weeks has been pushed back to January 2012, and that is the found footage thriller Apollo 18. Have you seen this trailer? I think I did finally. Yeah, it's okay. It looks kind of like a Roger Corman version of Moon. <laughs> it's like a bunch of astronauts <laughs> just freaking out. Like, what is it? What is it? And uh, I think it was Bob uh, by Bob Weinstein who said, uh, who confirmed, like, no, it is found footage. It's found footage, baby. That's a direct quote. Um, wow. But, yeah, apparently the, the found footage thriller is so thrilling that it's been pushed back to January 6th through 2012. <laughs> so, sorry, all you – yeah, this is supposed to open April 22nd. Like, this is supposed to open, like, in a few weeks. and got pushed uh-huh. all the way back to January, so. <sighs> Ouch, that's kind of brutal. Yeah. Dang. Um, let's see. Should I do the – well, they're both bad news, but I'll just get the really bad news out of the way because MGM is really desperate to make a buck. They're going to go ahead and remake Child's Play. Why? That there it is. The, the first film is the scariest and best of the bunch. You know they should stand by the first movie and just you know keep making these stupid Chucky sequels like they want to. But no, the first film is actually really great. 
I think they should remake it, but the the the, the twist in this should be that uh, the soul of a doll possesses Brad Dorif. <laughs> that would be interesting. Like if, I'm trying to think, like if it was like my pet monster, like possessing Brad Dorif, wouldn't that be cool? Or like, uh, or if they cross cross did a cross remake with Mannequin. Ah, that's the kind of high concept stuff, Dave. That could get you working at a studio. Oh, that's so sad. This is pointless. Pointless. I mean, for Pete's sake, they already made the Red Dawn remake, and I know they're working on RoboCop. But like, stay, stay away from all these remakes, man. Just put them back. Or just remake bad movies. Remake bad movies, or just put these films back in a theater. You know, like what the twenty, what is it, twenty fifth, twenty sixth anniversary of Child's Play back in theaters now. Like, do that kind of thing. Don't don't keep remaking these movies, and we got to settle for these subpar remakes of movies that didn't need it. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have anything else, sir? Uh, two more, two more. Okay. Uh, Warren Beatty uh, has retained the rights to Dick Tracy, so if Warren Beatty wanted to make another Dick Tracy movie, he could. This is more. He of a better. <laughs> I like Dick Tracy. This is more of a personal thing, though. Um, uh, his father used to read Dick Tracy to him. His father was a big fan of Dick Tracy, so it was a it was a real labor of love for him to be able to do Dick Tracy in the first place because this is something like you know well this is like a family thing. Um, so for Warren Beatty, this is a real personal triumph to be able to have the rights to Dick Tracy um, and not let some other hack just go out and make. Another stupid Dick Tracy movie. Will Madonna be in this again? <laughs> Probably. Well, no, she will not because we all know what happens to Breathless Mahoney at the end of the original Dick Tracy. So presumably not. No, now that it's 2011, it's going to be what, Lady Gaga? Oh. <laughs> well, I'd rather her than Madonna. Like, have you seen Madonna's arms lately? <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> Isn't she buff? I, no, I don't. I'm yeah, they're gro- it's like oh, they're so gross. She's she tone. looks like she looks like 1970s Iggy Pop. It's oh, ridiculous. She's a dancer. She's Dang. a dancer. She's in good shape. There's a difference between being in good shape and being like way too ripped. She is way too ripped. She has like probably like muscles on like her neck and her like eyebrows and ugh, it's just gross. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> I, I love the Material Girl. Okay, I got I got nothing bad to say about the Material Girl. Nothing. Not I have nothing. I, I, her music's fine. Just just saying, she should. I don't know. <laughs> eat a burger or you something. Just don't like her arms. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I've got two bits of news left. Um, one is unconfirmed, but rumor. It uh, looks like the end of Blockbuster is uh, is nigh completely. Um, there have been reports I've been reading online. That now this is all so treat this as rumor. Don't tell me, don't quote me as this is fact. But apparently, uh, there have been notes going up at various blockbusters closing and not closing, which they're dropping like flies around here. Uh, that you had you had better use all of your blockbuster gift cards because by April 6th, because after that, they will no longer be any good, they will be worthless, which is usually the final sign before liquidation. So, it looks like blockbuster is finally going away. I was going to sing Ding Dong, The Witch's Death, yeah. Dead, but you know. Well, you know, I'm trying to be a little more respectful because, you know, at one point I was a member of Blockbuster Video in the early 90s when they were like oh, yeah. the first video store to have like five copies of a new release. Like, ooh, I could actually get this thing tonight. See, there was a warehouse by us and they had a video section and they had all kinds of stuff. But I yeah. saw The Mummy thanks to Blockbuster Video because, uh, you know, it was one of these things like guaranteed to be in and it was not in. Like it was a Friday night, it was out and I'd never seen The Mummy before so I got a coupon that I can get The Mummy for free next time I came in so I got to see The Mummy for free. So thank you Blockbuster Video to give credit where credit was due. That was well over 10 years ago but uh, all the same. Yeah, yeah. Now now they don't even carry movies that were made before they were ma- they were in business. So that's, I can't imagine why they're going out of business. They don't carry movies that were made like before any of the people were Working there were alive 
You know, like they they've got like every movie made after like 1992, and that is it. So what you're saying is I think I I think I actually saw Citizen Kane when I was in there recently, but it was like in the action section. So (laughs) (laughs) what is it? It's like action, drama, and horror, right? Isn't that it? And comedy. That's right. They don't have sci-fi because now like sci-fi and adventure and action are like and fantasy are all one section. Yeah, yeah. So if they don't carry anything before 1992, that means that they sponsored someone's top ten list, right? Oh, (laughs) that's right. Went there. Freaking blockbuster! Like I seriously, like I, w- I want to be somewhat respectful because I was a member for at least four years. Like, and in then the I found 90s. Hollywood because they didn't treat you like a criminal. Well, then I found like all these local video stores that were that owned too. by real people who like love film, and it was like this place you can go in and talk about movies the way we go to use record stores now and talk to people about music, you know. But um, those days are gone, and a lot of those stores are gone, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So. Be prepared for to, to the news to come out in the next week or two that they're they're going to declare. Oh, of, we'll we'll definitely have to have some kind of music ready for that when that when it's official. <laughs> it's going to be a happy happy day. Yeah, I'll, this I'll, is going to be the worst thing for me though because there's you know they're going to like basically put everything on sale and I'm like I'm probably going to get like Blu-rays of like so many shitty movies. Yeah, but here's the well if they're doing the pricing like they are here, I was talking to them yesterday because there's one that's been going out of business for like three weeks and their used Blu-rays are a whopping fifteen percent off. Oh, they're gonna go off on Monday. They're gonna go. Up. I'm like, oh, okay, but just so you know, they're not gonna go any higher than twenty percent, twenty five percent off. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you don't want to sell them, okay? Because I'm, I'm not paying eighteen bucks minus twenty five percent for a rental stripped down exactly. extra copy of Book of Eli. You know, exactly. just it's not gonna happen. Yeah, but the DVDs, I was really happy though because there was one that went out of business way down on Powers where we live, and, and yeah, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I managed to get like Synecdoche, New York, and I think JCVD and Riding Giants all for like well under, I think like under five dollars. Yeah. So there you go. Oh yeah, and you know I'm gonna skip this. Well, no, I'll, I'll mention it. Uh, Netflix, interestingly enough, is losing some content. Which it doesn't happen too often. Uh, for a while, they've been doing. Uh, they've had a deal with Showtime and with Stars that you know was like 24 hours after the show airs, the episode's up on Netflix, and apparently they are both stopping that. Uh, Showtime is stopping it altogether. They're taking their stuff off of Netflix apparently altogether, and Stars is going to be delaying everything like three weeks. Which no, I'm sorry, it's 90 days before they'll let it be up and watched instantly. Mm. Which stinks because I was looking forward to seeing Torchwood like a day after it airs. So I guess I'll have to use the special antenna again. Shucks. The special antenna. <sighs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess let's go ahead and take it. Well, 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 let me, oh, one yeah, more thing. I'm sorry. One, I'm sorry. One more thing, Dave. Yeah, okay. I, I, I do want to mention this because I mean, I, you know, screen geeks. I know, like you know, we tend to skew a little younger or whatnot. But I do want to give some respect to the late Elizabeth Taylor. Oh yes. Um, no question. Okay. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor. No, it's okay. It's like, it's. Um, you know, I know a lot of young film goers like probably not familiar with Cat in the Hudson Roof or, or you know, or, or some of her, her Father of the Bride or Yeah, or for that matter, the movie that made her famous National Velvet, which is one of the best, if not the best, horse film. Um, no, extraordinary actress. Uh, she won a two Academy Awards for her acting abilities. Towards the end of her career, she became a lot more famous for her husbands and for her, you know, for for being Elizabeth Taylor than than for being an actress. Um, but this that said, she really was a terrific actress, a fearless actress. Um, she did as many movies that were fluff as she did films that were really daring and edgy for their time. I mean, I mean, if you look at Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the film that she won, one of the f- films she won an Oscar for, I mean, that is a fearless, scary, unhinged, brilliant performance. Um, and I should say this: Does anybody know what her last film was? The Flintstones. The Flintstones. 
Her last movie, Ooh. last movie opposite. And you know what? It was a big fat hit movie opposite. Wait, that, I was actually right. Like I just, I made that was like that was a joke guess. The Flintstones was the last film that Elizabeth Taylor ever made. And that was in 1994. Yep, Dang, last nice. film. And you know her filmography ranges from movies like The Flintstones to like you know like Cleopatra, one of the biggest flops of all time. Films <sighs> that's like that's such a rough movie to get. Butterfield through. Eight. I mean, no, she's done a lot of stuff. Um, you know, and that, that that's worthy of an episode unto itself because like she isn't like. You know, sorry to pick on Julia Roberts, but she isn't like where Julia Roberts, where the majority of the movies are fluff. Let's be honest. Oh yeah. Um, but like Elizabeth Ocean's Taylor's Twelve isn't. Oh, never mind. Okay. <laughs> but like, no, no, no. Like Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, her best performances are really, really brave and courageous. She was a. She really was a terrific actress, a heck of a lady. Much, much more than simply just a movie star. Um, our thoughts and prayers go out to her family. She will truly be missed. But she, I think it's fair to say she lived a rich, full life too. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Dang. So uh, before we take a break, we want to talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Uh, they they are they're cool. They sponsor us for crying out loud. How how bad could they be? We love you, sponsors. Indeed. Uh, but they have been cool enough to offer Screen Geeks Radio listeners a free 14 day trial to check out the service. Um, the cool thing is, I found that when you do the free trial, there's actually stuff you can download for free too, which is pretty sweet on top of your free book. There 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 are things on there that they offer to members that are free downloads. They don't require money or credits or anything. So there's all kinds of stuff on there. You have a, a, a pick, you said, Barry. Oh, sure, sure. I found this. I'm like, I'm, I'm listening to this. Uh, Casey Affleck reads Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. The Jungle is one of the grittiest, grittiest books. It's, it's Upton Sinclair's masterpiece. It's about a man who works in a Chicago meat factory. All the horrors that he witnesses. This is before, like, this is before people. Before OSHA? Yes. <laughs> this is like, you know, people like falling into the vat and becoming part of the meat. I mean, this is horror, <laughs> horror, horror. This uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, I mean, it's been called like the fast food nation of its day. Well, yeah, nothing will be a better diet suppressant than this book. And apparently Affleck's reading is very, very strong. He, he nails all the different accents and whatnot. And uh, apparently it's a really great read. And what a better way to read this gritty, gritty novel than, than guided you along by ben Casey Affleck. There you go. There you go. If you want to check it out, if you want to check out any of the other books they have, they've got all st- kinds of stuff by Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett, um, all, name it. There's there's just too many books to name. But go check out audibletrial.com slash screengeeks. Sign up. You'll get the free 14-day trial. You'll help us out a little bit. It'll be awesome. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then we will come back and talk about the films of Mr. Gus Van Sant. Thanks, Dave. Great show. At Jonja.net, that's J-O-N-J-A, we have everything to satisfy your sci-fi fan needs. If you look at this chart comparing... What do you mean there's no video? They're screen geeks. They don't have a screen? Well, how am I supposed to... I hired a Cylon to tell everyone about the discussions of sci-fi television movies past and present. I guess I won't be needing you. You can leave. I mean, come on, I had Nichelle Nichols beam in to talk about our long list of exclusive interviews, including Zachary Quinto, Amanda Tapping, and the crew of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Hailing frequencies are always open at JeanJ.net. Never mind, Miss Nichols. Thanks for coming in. I don't believe this. Oh, great. Now here comes my special guest to tell people about JeanJ.net's Flash Arcade. Forget it, man. They can't even see you. Oh, well. Maybe everyone will find their way over to Jonja.net to see and hear everything for themselves. Thanks for watch, listening. Now back to Screen Geeks. 
thank you, Chris, for that ad. I love that ad. Chris is like the nicest guy, and here he is mocking us on our own ad. So thank you. <laughs> Listen to Jonesy.net. Good stuff. No, I love that ad. I never get sick of it. Um, this week, we're going to be discussing the films of Gus Van Sant, Portland, Oregon Zone. Um, really one of the finest independent filmmakers who's also kind of dipped his feet into the Hollywood pool as well. Um, this is this is a really wonderful filmmaker, and I'm really, really excited to be talking about him today. Um, we'll start off with his, uh, his debut film, which came out in 1985. It was a kind of a big film on the festival circuit for a while. That was Mala Noche, Mala Noche, which is Spanish for bad night. Um, I mean, I guess I'll just start off say this is this kind of film. It's kind of a precursor for for drugstore, not drugstore cowboy. I'm sorry, for my own private Idaho. It deals very frankly, um, in, in some cases very graphically, with the, the sex lives and the day to day situations of these homosexuals living in, in Portland, Oregon. Um, yeah, Malanoche, like, my favorite thing about the film is the filmmaking. I mean, it's, I, I think it's Gus Van Sant's Who's That Knocking at My Door, like the way Scorsese's original film was also in black and white. It was very raw, um, but the the ingenuity and the energy of the filmmaking, I thought, really sold that movie, and that's why I like Malanoche. I think the filmmaking is really solid. It shows a, it shows, it's a great job of providing perspective on these different characters, and not really a story film, more it is just kind of a character observation piece. What did you think of the film, Ethan? Uh, yeah, I saw it for the first time this week, and I I loved it. I think it's one of his best films, and it really was. It spearheaded the uh, queer cinema movement. Mm. So you know that's just a bit of a tidbit there. But uh, what I, I love, yeah, you mentioned just how he directs the film. Like I love the not only the black and white, but the uh, Academy aspect ratio. Yeah. And how I think it works best in the scene, the first love scene, because that scene feels so kind of like claustrophobic, just in thanks due to the aspect ratio. And it really kind of gets you in there and then makes you feel how like awkward that scene is. And uh, I also really love the voiceover in it, how it's done by this guy who so does not have like a voiceover kind of presence to him. Just like, yeah, yeah well, uh, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that kind of voice. Like yeah. it's so different than the kind of Morgan Freeman right. kind of narration. It's more of a stream stream of consciousness of the character, and I actually I appreciated that first love scene because it is very, I, I don't know, it's not graphic but it is, and I think it's handled very tastefully. But you know exactly what's going on, and I really appreciate that about it, honestly. And yeah, I, I love the uh, Portland setting. Like I said, it, it adds such an interesting atmosphere to the film. Yeah, I appreciate it too. It's because you know. Baltimore, Maryland is, you know, that's that's a John Waters movie right there. But, you know, with uh, with Portland, Oregon, I mean, it's just one of these settings that you just don't see. And, and this movie really knows the feel of the place and the look of those people and, and really captures it. Kind of the same way the Ben Affleck's really great films deal with, with Boston. Um, you want a movie that feels lived in and not, just, not simply just a, a set. And uh, I really enjoyed that aspect that you really feel like these characters are real people. And to, to that level, uh, I should talk about the performances um, – it's wonderful how Van Sant, sometimes he finds genuine actors and sometimes he just finds people that look like they'll be able to carry a film. Um, and this film, like, it's full of amateur performances and they're so authentic and they're so wonderful and you never question their motivations, you never question their authenticity because even though they may not be, you know, Brando caliber actors, they really do carry the look and feel and the tone that, that Van Sant's trying to set forth. Let me ask you a question about this. Both, both of you, do you think that this film... I think I feel like when he did his bit in Parish Attempt, he was kind of re- revisiting the same, the same ground, but in a very unique and different way. I really that that's one thing that I really liked was that 
he came back to the same themes and the, and the same kind of story, but in a different way and just really brought life to it again. I Can you remind me, because I, I, I saw it once and I liked it, but what was his vignette in Parish of Tim? The guy who walks into the shop and, and the Frenchman's essentially telling him in French, and the guy doesn't understand French because he's English, he just essentially tells him how he loves him and, you know, the things he, they want to do together. And That's right, okay. It, it was just, it was a really striking piece in the film. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, this is it's very unapologetic dealing with with gay themes and, and that kind of thing. And it's, you know, I mean, that's I mean, as Ethan just pointed out, I mean, not only did this kind of spearhead that cinematic movement, but I mean, it was so rare to see that depicted at all in the '80s, unless it was something freakish like Cruising or something like Police Academy, where it's like a big, you know, fat joke. Um, but no, this movie treats that world, it treats those people um, honestly and openly, and it doesn't like shy away from any of that stuff, which like even a lot of mainstream movies still continue to do. I, I love the part where he was talking about what he was going to do. He's like, I'm going to go up to his room at midnight, and <laughs> has the whole thing laid out. Knock, knock, knock. Hello, is anyone there? Yeah. <laughs> that, that was actually, I think, hilarious, too. Yeah, yeah. No, this, yeah, a lot of, lot of great stuff in Melanoche. Um, all right, well, moving on to basically his big breakthrough film, which was Drugstore Cowboy. Drugstore Cowboy um, was certainly seen as a huge come, uh, comeback film for Matt Dillon, whose career had kind of, kind of lost its focus for a while. Dillon is always an interesting actor, and he tends to bring his, his very easy, accessible, brooding intensity to just about any role he plays. But somewhere, somewhere around like maybe like The Big Town, uh, some of the films he started to do were, were just not quite worthy of him. And then he does Drugstore Cowboy, which is possibly one of his best performances. Kelly Lynch is great in this movie. James LaGrosse is great in this film. And, of course, you know, the, the I mean, manner needs no introduction. William, Bur- William Burroughs, his scene, is just utterly mesmerizing. Um, this is the film that really put Van Sant on the map in the, in the sense that more so than Melanoche, it was a film that was widely seen. It was a very uh, critically acclaimed art film, considered one of the best films of 1989. Um yeah, I, I like this film very much. I really do. I saw it for the first time last week, and I talked about it on last week's show. But uh, just to reiterate what I said, I again, like Malanoche, I love the Portland setting. I, uh, I love the William S. Burroughs stuff. And I actually think it's genuinely suspenseful at times. Like yeah. the first scene where they rob a drugstore is actually like really like a real edge of your seat kind of scene. So, yeah, I like that film a lot. Yeah, and I think we could almost pinpoint the strength of, of Van Sant as a filmmaker in a film like this. Um, he doesn't give us necessarily sympathetic characters. He's not someone who's worried about, will the audience like these people? He tends to, especially in his art films, I mean his studio films are another story, but but in his art films, he really just kind of allows us to go along with the journey, whether we like these people or not, and whether we agree with their decisions or not. And I'm not talking about, about, about gay or straight, I'm talking about you know murderers and, and drugstore cowboys and, and, uh, and, and prostitutes and hustlers. Um, but he creates them so vividly, and he allows the actor seemingly gives them enough room to to really just just kind of go for it and and be honest. Um, this is a this is one of these actors directors who I really like. It just seems like he's always trusting his actors to to you know kind of carry the ball, and and he's not worried about like well you know. It, you know, they, they may not like the way this, this film is going. I mean, this is this is one of these guys who's clearly inspired greatly by Jean-Luc Godard, and, and you know, later on we'll get into, like, his, his influences like Andy Warhol and whatnot. This is a guy who really does see the possibilities of cinema and the way cinema can, can really open us up to a world that, you know, is forbidden to us. 
All right, sorry. Uh, my Own Private Idaho. This is this is one of my favorites of his films. In fact, I think this is the film that really made me love him as a filmmaker because the first time I saw it, I, I just did not get it, okay? I did not get this film the first time I saw it. Um, it is puzzling how an hour into the movie, all of a sudden, it becomes Shakespeare. It is puzzling uh, some of the very surrealistic imagery in this movie. Um, it's hard to latch onto a film where the lead uh, protagonist is uh, suffering from narcolepsy, and at times, you know exactly where the story is going and where he's going. Then he'll fall asleep, and all of a sudden, it'll be like a different film, and you'll have to kind of play catch up as to where he's been. Um, this is the first time I'd ever seen River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves play play gay hustlers with a drug fetish, um, you know. And I certainly knew those two actors uh, for their, for their more mainstream films than than this film. Um, this film just totally took me off guard the first time I saw it, and every time I go back to it, I think it is a film of real beauty. I think it's incredibly haunting. The closing scene, uh, like the closing scene of many of Van Sant's films, continues to haunt me. And, uh, and this is another film that exists in this kind of this this sleazy world, but it finds a way to make the the characters poignant. I love the scene with Udo Kier. It's crazy, and I love it. Um, I love the scenes of the, the figures in the, the pornographic magazines coming to life and kind of winking at the, the protagonist. It, to me, this is such a stunning visual film, and this is obviously the kind of sophomore effort that filmmakers make after they've made like their first big breakthrough and like you know they go out and do like boogie nights. You know, they like they do like a follow up movie that is so much more ambitious and crazy. Um, I, I love this film. I really do. It's, I haven't seen this movie since I was like 14, so my memory of it really just sort of stretches to certain visuals in it, like the magazines. And wasn't there a scene with like a falling house or something? Yes, awesome. Yeah, this house just falls into the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think Keanu Reeves is like perfectly cast in it. Yes. As well. Like he just, that's like he's sort of, it's like he doesn't, he's not asked to give much more than kind of his his kind of presence, you know, and I think he's great in it. And uh, it's so weird. I know my dad has seen this movie as well, and he likes it, it which is so strange to me because he does not watch these kinds of movies. So that's a little tidbit there. <laughs> um, no, 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 I appreciate that because you never know how this film is going to strike people because parts of it are, are, I mean, we could just say it. I mean, this film is incredibly pretentious and self-indulgent. It is. And there are aspects of the movie that are really puzzling. It's all there for a purpose, but I mean, no question, this is a movie where the filmmaker is really trying some things. And some things I've, I've certainly never seen before in any film, art movie or, or mainstream movie. Um, but yeah, this is a, uh, I think it's a special film. I really do. There's, there's enough there. I think that, that really take the, if, if you're adventurous, you go on quite the ride with this film. So Regarding the term pretentious, I, I've kind of come to a realization recently that it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Like, I think there, there's, there are yeah, filmmakers and films that are pretentious, but they, within that pretension is skilled filmmaking, you know, like some, like Van Sant. And then there's people like, I don't know, like Tarsem or something who's pretentious, but doesn't have that much real skill. And it's just like, uh, but, you know. Well, I, I think, no, I mean, I appreciate you saying that, Ethan, because I actually said this to my class a, a week or so ago. I think it's good when we have a pretentious director because the best films are all pretentious. Psycho is pretentious. Gone with the Wind is pretentious. Uh, you know, for Pete's sake, the best films that Christopher Nolan made are completely pretentious. Woody Allen's best films are pretentious. I don't think there's anything wrong with pretension. I think, um, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, you, you mentioned Tarsum. I don't completely agree with that, but I think that's a that's a fine example because there are some directors where the style and, you know, everything is, is so 
it, it calls attention to itself so much that you, you really get the sense of the director going, look at this, as opposed to a director really showing us something different. So I think there is a fine line. But no, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, too. I agree with that. I think uh, perhaps some of Francis Ford Coppola's best films are pretentious, but I think some of his worst movies are pretentious. So I... You know, it's it's kind of I think it's definitely something to take like on a film to film basis, like when when that is or isn't good. Um, but in, I mean, in the case of Van Sant, I think for the most part, his best films are completely maddeningly pretentious. And I think that, you know, I, I would get behind his more pretentious films and the movies he's done that are more safe. But um, I don't know. Any any other thoughts on that? That's a really good point you made. I do make good points. <laughs> <laughs> all right well I, I, i'd love to say that van sant uh, just hits it out of the ballpark every time but no in fact this may be his worst film um i'm going to talk about his ad- adaptation of, t- of tom robbins even cowgirls get the blues have you seen this one ethan yeah all right um I, i'll just throw it out there i'm not going to say that this film is not is, isn't watchable or that it's not entertaining on us on a so bad as good level um, but, you know, I mentioned Tyler Perry's Four Colored Girls a few minutes ago, and, and I would say this is also one of those films that I would say probably one of the worst films I think I've ever seen. Um, it's astonishing cast, no question. Um, just to name off the, the lead people I could think of, we're talking Uma Thurman, Lorraine Bracco, Rain Phoenix, Keanu Reeves, John Hurt, Pat Morita, um, Roseanne Barr is in this film. I mean, it, just a crazy, crazy cast. Um I don't think Tom Robbins' book, which I've read, is unfilmable. I just don't think the approach that, that Van Sant took works. Um, it want, it's, a, it's a film that wants to be campy. Um, it wants to do a lot of things. I don't think any of it works, really. I think this is a pretty bad film. It, it, was, it was recut after its initial premiere at a film festival. I don't remember which one it was. Um, so it's, it's one of these movies that's been kind of tampered with. I'm not sure if a longer cut would help or, or if an even shorter cut than the one that exists would help. Um, but I, I don't think this is a good film. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's well made and interesting to watch. But yeah. and I like on my Twitter thing, I gave it a two out of four. But yeah, it is a disaster. Yeah, yeah. I think I, the problem is it's just it's a bit of a quirk overload, and I think that's just something that doesn't translate from the novel, I guess, because there's a there's a scene where it's John Hurt, you know, like in makeup and doing this ridiculous character. Yeah. And I see it's Uma Thurman who has these giant thumbs and is doing this ridiculous accent. And it's like you have two caricatures interacting with like this ridiculous dialogue. And it's like it's just it's just too much. Yeah, I completely agree. There's there's no there's no center to all the madness. It's just all this crazy quirkiness going on. I remember there being a masturbation scene involving Keanu Reeves that I thought was quite amusing, I must say. Um, but beyond that, there's the even even the strong, interesting visuals that he does. Like he like most of Van Sant's movies have this really wonderful keyhole effect that I've always liked. Um, but even even those aspects of this movie, I don't think come through. I mean, I, I don't think this is a great example of him as a filmmaker. I think, and as Ethan said, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think this is as far as bad movies go, it's interesting, and I think you can learn a lot about bad decisions that filmmakers make by watching this film. But I don't think it makes it a good film. Have you seen this one? No. Okay. No, that's why I'm being quiet for most of this episode. I've watched a few movies, but okay. not many. All right. Well, now, well, things things look up um, after the disaster of even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which I think was supposed to come out in a in 93 and it came out in 94 um, and it just it basically played in art theaters for just a few weeks before vanishing he came back very very strong with To Die For To Die For uh, his satirical thriller about a about something of a of a media hungry murderer 
Um, this is the film that put Nicole Kidman on the map as a real actress and not simply Mrs. Cruz, who basically, that's what she was known as at the time. You've also got fine performances by Matt Dillon, Joaquin Phoenix, and a, a certain David Cronenberg. Um, I like this film a lot. I think it's I think it's pretty wonderful. It's got real snap. It is a sharp and vicious, vicious satirical comedy. I think I think it works. Yeah, I think I, I I saw this a few months ago and I talked about it. And I, I, what I said was it's basically like a competition between Gus Van Sant and Buck Henry to see who can be more clever. Yes. And yeah, and it's it's very entertaining. I liked it, but. You mentioned uh, Joaquin Phoenix. I actually don't really like Joaquin Phoenix in this much. He struck me as a little too mannered. I think Casey Affleck in this is a lot more natural and funny and interesting, but yeah. Okay. That's but yeah, I guess you can say this movie displays a lot of, because it's Van Sant, you know, it is kind of a, it is basically a studio movie for him. Yeah. Right? It was, so, but even this is an example of him, like, having kind of his auteur, auteur touches in it, like, um, how much, like, uh, television is used in it, like, is obviously one of his touches is he uses lots of archive footage and television and other media spliced into the film, That so that's just a touch that makes it interesting yeah and the timing was good too i mean i uh, appreciate bringing up the television angle i mean this film came out uh let's see let's see it was fall of 95 so we're talking like right after the oj simpson trial so that that was certainly most critics commented on that just how you know how murderers can become celebrities i mean i think this film does in a much more gentle way what oliver stone's natural born killers did in a very sledgehammer to the crotch kind of way um, you know, trying trying to do the whole notion that like you know this is a way of, of of these these murderers to kind of feed off the notion of celebrity and become these antiheroes and you know become these these uh, these famous monsters. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No. No. It is. Yeah. It, it's a studio film, but I think it's a very very well made film, and I think it is a film where he, clearly clearly they hired Van Stan to be a filmmaker and allow his his personality to to you know. To, to not only his personality but his stylistic touches to to be peppered throughout the film um and after okay this is where most of us come in uh 1997 would be the the release of goodwill hunting this this film has an interesting history of course it was written by ben affleck and and matt damon back when they were just character actors going from job to job i was ready sir <laughs> it's okay um yeah they, they were basically just uh you know they were just known as these character actors and uh, they initially took the screenplay to rob reiner who told them to cut the thriller subplot there used to be a thriller subplot about using will hunting apparently like like nasa or some spies wanted to use him because of his his so it becomes like pie right and thankfully thankfully rob reiner said you need to cut this out and, and he ended up not making the film at all and gus van Sant, i guess was down the list of different filmmakers they considered and talked to well, I imagine because uh, Ben Affleck, brother of Casey Affleck, Casey Affleck was in To Die For. There you go. Yes, exactly. The Six Degrees of Gus Van Sant. No, they, I'm sure that had a big, had something something to do with it. And of course, Casey Affleck is in the film, very memorably so. Um, this is uh, this was the first film he ever did that made over 100 million dollars. It's a it was a hugely successful film. It lost the best uh, best picture award to Titanic, one of the many films that got screwed that year. Although it did win for best original screenplay, of course, and Robin Williams won an Academy Award for his performance. He he, he won for Dead Poet Society, but you know. Uh, well. Wasn't that the next time he got nominated after getting screwed on that? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Let's see. Well, no, no. Um, 
Yeah, because he was up for Good Morning America. He was up for Dead Poets Society, and he lost, lost for both of those. And he lost for Fisher King, too, which really pissed me off. But then, yeah, but I think at that point, it's like, we got to give Robin Williams something because he's yeah. actually doing good work. This is before the RV days. You know, this is before, yeah. you know. Before old dogs. Well, this was uh, like, you know what he did oh, right after? Oh, you went there, Dave. I did. We know what he did right after Good Will Hunting was Flubber. So, like, oh. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Um, no, let's talk about this film. I mean, like this is a this is a hugely hugely popular film, but I think it, it can be overlooked what what uh, Van Sant brings to this film. I think the style that it brings to the film is tremendous. Um, I think the closing scene of the film is perfect, and it feels very very fitting for his filmography. Um, I, I think all the scenes with, with, with Williams and Damon, even the ones that are a little contrived, I think the, the performances are terrific by everybody in this movie. Mini Driver, I thought was wonderful. Yeah, remember the shock when you found out that Minnie Driver wasn't American? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the first movie I ever saw her in actually was, uh, um, well, I think it was Circle. It was Gross Point Blank for me. Okay, it was either Circle of Friends or GoldenEye. And GoldenEye, she plays, do you remember this? She plays a Russian lounge singer. No. She's like singing in Russian in a bar in one scene in GoldenEye. Yeah, anyway. No, no, not so much. But she's, yeah, she's. I think she's still in the film, still on Sarsgaard. Uh, I love his performance as, as, as Robin Williams' best friend and and, uh, and and biggest enemy, frankly, his, uh, his nemesis. Um, I think Ben Affleck is quite funny. I love this scene where he impersonates Will and goes to that job interview and he extorts all those guys there for money. Do you remember that? It's been a while since I've okay, seen yeah, it. I've just been thinking, I'm like, you know, I should just watch that tonight. You should. It's a great film. And yeah, that scene in particular is one of my favorites because it's such a weird scene, um, but it's it's really funny. Um, Another really weird scene is the one where like Casey Affleck is like masturbating in the baseball glove or something. That's like such a <laughs> strange scene. <laughs> But no, anyway, I, I, <laughs> for some reason I'm blanking on that. I guess I blocked. That no, well, it's not like they physically show him. It's like he comes down and he's talking. It's like I was using my mom's baseball glove or something. It's like in Ben Affleck's like you were jerking off, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we should talk about the style. We should definitely talk about the style because there is a, a visual motif that's that that kind of is repeated throughout the film because it's it's eventually revealed that Will Hunting is is a is an, a victim of abuse and so that the the title se- the title sequences in a lot of the ways uh, some of the scenes kind of transition from one scene to another have this kind of this foggy hazy effect and it's because that's what we eventually learn that's kind of what Will would go through after you know blacking out after being beaten by his father or from just just how this heightened sense of reality would would occur whenever his father would come towards him so the film really is about it kind of surviving your upbringing and surviving the abuse that you've been and also and also overcoming compromise like not settling for the life that's in front of you but actually going for the life that you can have um i think in all those respects the film is extremely strong i mean i think this is honestly i, I thought this was a four-star movie the first time i saw it and i still feel that way it gets better yeah, if you watch the tv yeah. edit though the tv edit the tv edit is a thing of beauty just because of how how awfully and pathetically they overdub all the swearing it is worth the price of admission just for that Sorry. What was that, Ethan? I just totally uh, Well, I was going to get into the style of the movie and whatnot. Fine. Um, Talk about I love, too, the, uh, the scene where uh, Robin Williams is, uh, he's telling him the story about meeting his wife, and he and it's about, because he didn't go to the baseball game, right? And they intercut it with the archive footage of the baseball game. Yes. That's, again, that's a Van Sant touch, or yes. uh, when Will finally reveals, you know, what happened to him, there's a, the cut of uh, his dad walking up the stairs, and, and the scene, I think, where there's, like, the police are beating them up, how it's done in slow motion, like, yeah, it's a lot of good... Uh, GVS touches in there. There you go. Very nice. Saves us time. Who has the time to say Gus Van Sant? GVS. There you go. 
And also Harmony Korean cameo. Can't forget about that. That's right. And what does he say in the scene? He's like, yeah, man, I saw you. Or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so I want to watch it just to try to catch that. I want to watch Good Will Hunting and watch Jay and Silent Bob strike back, back to back. Because <laughs> I think that just that just adds to it's like It's like Good Will Hunting existing in a different universe. Gus, what's my, what's my motivation here? Uh, I'm, I'm busy doing something, man. <laughs> Isn't he counting money? <laughs> something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or he's reading other scripts or something. Right, right. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, this is again. This is where it gets really interesting. Um, he could have Gus Van Sant could have done anything after Global Hunting. Anything, and he decided to do a shot by shot <laughs> quasi remake of Psycho in color. I'll never forget where I was when I heard about this. I remember being in my my college computer lab, and I remember reading that story in USAToday.com, and I remember just the horror, like they're remaking my favorite movie. I can't believe it. And then I saw the film. This kind of like sums up how I feel about the movie. I remember I I took my friend Tyler to see it the night it opened up because I saw that thing the day it opened up in theaters. And I remember when it was over, I remember, because he had never seen the film before. He, he, he didn't know anything about Psycho or Norman Bates. And I remember Tyler going, you know, that was, that was all right. I mean, I guess. Took him home. We immediately sat down and watched the Hitchcock movie. He goes, oh, yeah, that was, that was much, much better. <laughs> I've never seen it just because I've heard of how bad it is. Um, I'm actually going to defend this a little bit. I, I think, again, we have to, what we have to say about this movie, two things. Okay, technically it isn't actually shot by shot, right. and that's where it gets interesting. And yeah. second, this isn't like meant to be something that is released in like two thousand theaters. This is meant to be something that'd be like like an installation in an art museum somewhere. Right. You know, yes. it's an experiment. And where I think it's I think it's that is interesting about the movie, like kind of the the GVS touches, like uh, in all the kill scenes, like. Yeah. The, how he does the shower scene, how um, he intersperses it with footage of clouds, yes. uh, GVS touch, or most interestingly, when he kills uh, William H. Macy and it cuts to the uh, footage of the woman in a porn video and like right. the cow on the road and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I guess the biggest change is in the scene where he's peeking through the peephole. Uh, he's, you know, yes. spanking the monkey. And uh, I think that's what that's Gus Van Sant trying to kind of put a queer cinema element to this movie. It's like he's saying that this Norman Bates is like this guy who is battling sexualities. And when he feels tempted by a woman, he dresses up as his mom to kind of and it's like his homosexuality is taking over and he makes him kill. That's how I sort of interpreted his touches. And uh, again, I think it's interesting, too, how he's like using all these contemporary things like there's this Julianne Moore has a Walkman and one scene has like a Rob Zombie song. Right. But at the same time, the movie has very classical dialogue and pace and the scene with William H. Macy, it still uses back projection. Yep. And uh, again, I think I can see the attraction GVS has to Hitchcock because if you've ever read Andrew Saris's review of Psycho, he said how um, Hitchcock was the most avant-garde director in Hollywood so obviously that was Gus Van Sant's attraction but again it's not a perfect movie again it is sort of just interesting to think about and not really to watch and uh, I think one of the big problems is I think Vince Vaughn is like horrifically miscast in it yeah, no, I, I appreciate those comments because I'm I'm kind of on the same wavelength. I've I've kind of warmed up to the movie over time. I don't like it. Likewise, I I think it's not a good film, but I I do like the intellectual quality of the film. Um, I remember I think it was Roger Ebert. I, I I seem to think it was Roger Ebert who bumped into Van Sant and asked him why did you do that movie, and and Van Sant said, well, because no one else did. No one else has ever done like a shot by shot color remake of a of a classic movie. So I thought I'd be the first. You know, which reminds me of like. Uh, 
of uh, that line from Star Trek V, where where Leonard Nimoy is holding uh, William uh, William Shatner upside down because he caught him as he fell off of, of uh, Mount Capitan, and uh, <laughs> and uh, Leonard Nimoy goes, perhaps because it is there is not a good reason to go mountain climbing, um, and I think that kind of sums up Psycho because on one hand, you know. I love that somebody made this movie because it just proved that it, it, it can't really be done or shouldn't be done, a shot-by-shot color remake of a classic film. I'm glad we're not going to see, like, Michael Bay's Citizen Kane yet. Um, <laughs> but I, – and I do want to give credit where credit is due because this is – and I agree with Ethan. It's an interesting idea, and I like your your take that it's that this is, like, his version of gay cinema. I mean, we should also point out that in addition to the, the differences that Ethan pointed out um, – a very big difference I thought was really interesting is that in the original, when Lila Crane, played in the original by Vera Miles, goes to Norman Bates' bedroom and sees what his record player, what he had on his record player, I think it was Eureka, I think, and in the remake, it's Donnie and Marie. So, I mean, right there, right there. Um, <laughs> what does that wow. mean? What does that mean? Nothing. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you, Ethan. I, I love the touches that Van Sant put in this film, and I wish there would be more of them. I, there was a point in the movie where I really, where I really thought, screw this. I want to see Gus Van Sant's Psycho. I want to see his movie. I love the cow in the road. I love the, uh, the the lightning bolt in the clouds during the shower scene. I don't love the masturbation th- scene. I, that scene I thought was unintentionally funny in theaters, and I still think it just, just does not work and kills the tension of that scene. Um, but I it wish his tension too, though. Uh, uh. But no, I, I do think. I do think there was enough there to kind of say that, like, he was on to something really interesting with this movie. And, and and as an experiment, I don't think it works. I mean, I think it's a much better film than even Cowgirls Get the Blues just because it is interesting. And, and Julian Moore is very good in the film. Um, but I agree. I think Vince Vaughn, I mean, his performance is a disaster. I mean, it makes Norman Bates like this giggling simp. And there's something so obviously wrong with him that even if you're trying to remake Psycho on some kind of fundamental level, his performance completely shows the hand of the nature of Norman Bates. And that's a, that doesn't work at all. But yeah, I like William H. Macy. I thought Macy was fine. I thought Julian Moore was good. Um, Viggo Mortensen, I think, mumbles as much in this movie as he does in the other Hitchcock remake. He did that year, A Perfect Murder. Um, definitely not one of his be- best performances, but... Um, it is an interesting film, and I think if you I actually like yep. Anne Hesh in it too. I, I normally can't stand her, but I thought she was actually pretty good in it. I like her a lot. I don't like her in this film, and you know what? It has nothing to do with her performance. I agree, her performance is fine. I think it had everything to do with her weird earrings and wardrobe. Um, I think there's something very strange about the way she looks in this movie, like a lot of greens and yellows. Um, you know, that's that's probably just a choice that Van Sant made. Did you notice uh, the Six Days Seven Nights poster? No. As she's pulling into the gas station, there's a little bus depot, and it's got a Six Days, Seven Nights poster on. Of course, that's a movie she did right before Psycho. So anyway, I thought that was a nice touch too. Um, and I like James LaGrosse taking on the uh, – I mean, of course, James LaGrosse from Psycho taking on the role of the um, uh, the, the car salesman. Um, yeah, so not a good movie. Um, but I think I'm I'm a, I think I'm a little more interested in it now that I'm kind of past. Okay, like people obviously have not replaced this movie with the original Psycho. It ha- it didn't like take over or anything, because <laughs> um, I think that was a concern when it came out. That like, what if like 18 year olds love this movie? No, 18 year olds are bored to tears with this movie. Um, but I think I agree with Ethan as an experimental film, as certainly as a movie that yes should have been released in limited release and not like you know everywhere on November 4th. I think uh, I think it's it's worth looking at. So. All right, well then, after Psycho, we go back to mainstream. He made Finding Forrester, um, which I... I thought you were going to say he went back to Goodwill Hunting, but okay. No, well, some, some people say that, and uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, because I don't think this is... I, I don't think... 
I think this is a really strong movie. I really do. I want to defend Finding Forrester because I know a lot of people said, well, you know, it's it's easy Gus Van Sant. And I don't know. I don't think it's on the level of Jerry or anything. But I, I love this film. I think it's really good for what it is. I do think it could be uh, Sean Connery's best performance. You're the man now, dog. That kills it for me right there. Why does that kill it for you? <laughs> it's Sean Connery. He's living in the hood. He's he's playing J.D. Salinger, and he's very much in tune with what young people feel and think. He hears that he hears that that dialogue all the time, but he does, never communicates with people. I, it, it, I don't know. That kills it for no, you. No, the movie's no, two and a half hours long. It that me, does it? it? No, 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 no. That's that's just me joking. It's not a bad movie. It's just not particularly memorable to me. You don't honestly. think it's memorable? Why not? I, I I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen it, and I didn't don't remember much about it, and didn't okay. feel the need to go revisit it either. Okay, Ethan. <laughs> uh, I saw it for the first time yesterday, and uh, it's it's okay. It kind of I was there are a few Van Sant or GVS sorry touches in it like that were interesting. <laughs> like the opening credits kind of got me excited. I thought, oh, this might actually be more uh, Gus Van Sant than I expected. But and there's like this one use of slow motion that's pretty awesome in it. But yeah. It's yeah, it's it's a watchable movie. I think it's watchable. It's very sentimental, and you know, no question, the ending is you know is Goodwill Hunting meets Sin of a Woman. Um, but I I don't mind those aspects of the movie. I, I I think I would hate the F. Murray Abraham character if he did, gave a bad performance, but I think he's great. Um, likewise, obviously the the Anna Paquin character is so forced to add some kind of love story aspect to the movie that it doesn't need. But I think she's very good in the film. I think Rob Brown is very good considering he was apparently like not even not even a really classically trained actor at that point um and i love that uh that connery's playing salinger and it kind of you know gives us insight to what it's like to to be this introverted uh kind of living in this hermetically sealed bubble of creativity that he decides to share with this young man um i think it's about the joy of writing in every sense um as far as like a studio mainstream feel-good tearjerker movie goes i think this is a really great example of what it is uh, speak, speaking of the actors, I thought it was interesting. Michael Pitt in this, like, it seems like he's sort of being set up early as like the best friend character in the movie. Then he like disappears for like yeah. almost the entire movie, and then at the end he's like clapping at the basketball game and stuff. It's it's like I imagine he got like there's a ton of Michael Pitt on the cutting room floor. Then Gus Van Sant's like, sorry about that, Michael. I'll I'll cast you as Kurt Cobain one day. Doesn't <laughs> yeah, make a present. No, that's that's actually it's probably what happened. So. Um, all right, well, then moving on there, we go to his experimental phase, which is, this is when it gets really, really, really interesting. Um, back to back, um, Gus Van Sant made Elephant, the film that won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival in 2000 in, I think, 2003. And later on that year, he released Jerry, um, a literal minimalist film with Casey Affleck and, uh, and Matt Damon. Um, we'll talk about Elephant first. Elephant, um, I mean, how to put this? I mean, it's essentially a recreation of the last few days of Columbine, the events leading up to the shooting and then the actual shooting itself, which is depicted uh, startlingly um, with with graphic violence and uh, with, with, with the camera not shying away from any of it. Um, this is a tough one for me um, because I, I acknowledge the great filmmaking there. I do. I don't like this film. Um, I think... I mean, it, it has everything to do the, the the success and failure of this movie, and I don't, I, you know, failure is maybe too strong a word because I think it is a, it's a very well made film, but I, I think you know it does avoid, it does avoid a kind of psychological probing that I think, you know, might have been necessary or maybe the movie could have could have benefited from. I think 
there are aspects of the film that feel really contrived, um, especially in the latter part of the film where it deals with what the what the killers are, are going through and doing. Um, and there are moments of it I thought that felt kind of going for like kind of like a cheap shock as opposed to actually going for for dramatic authenticity. You know, but at the same time, I have to acknowledge that there are some lovely, beautiful film, uh, beautiful scenes in this film. I love the moment where the young girl comforts that guy in the classroom because he's clearly just devastated. There, there are all sorts of moments in this film I think that are really human and beautiful. Um, but I, I don't like the film, and it's not because it's a poorly made film. I just, I just don't like the film. I, what do you think, Ethan? I think it's probably the best picture of two thousand three. Even though I haven't seen it in like five years. <laughs> I'm just basing <laughs> off what I remember. Okay. Uh, but you were talking about the psychological probing and the killers. And what, what, that's what I like about the movie is how it doesn't blame anything. It doesn't say this, this is what causes kids to kill. It just like, it shows them playing violent video games. It shows them listening to music. It's like, it's like all these elements together, but it's like nothing specifically is driving them towards this. And I really, and a scene that really, I remember a lot is the uh, shower scene where just they kind of before I think the day they're going to do it they just decide to and this is another Gus Van Sant touch being very frank with his you know he's a gay man so he he puts that in his films you know two guys getting together in the shower it's yeah. interesting no and I remember the scene and I thought it was beautifully shot I just felt that that scene like a few others it just it felt half-baked to me and, and and again, like I know his approach has everything to do with how we should see this film. We shouldn't. And I agree. I don't want to. I don't want a scene in like in Psycho where some psycho analyst is saying, "Well, this is why they did it." I'm not looking for that. And you know, if, in fact, having them play those violent video games. In fact, the video game being the Jerry video game of all things. I mean, I think that's fine because that's obviously a commentary on what we think or what we assume was a factor to what they did, which of course is not the case at all. Um, but. Uh, I just felt that there were aspects of, of there were things that are in the movie that, that felt it just they they felt half realized to me. And I think because the subject matter I mean, because this movie came out for Pete's sake, what, four or five years after the Columbine Massacre, I just I thought there were things about it that, that could have been stronger and more developed. I think there there are aspects of the movie that's that are so experimental and something I think a little a little stronger. I'm trying to. Well, well, that's yeah. just. It, I mean, when you take that approach with the film, that's kind of the price you pay. You know what do you mean? You know what I mean? Like you, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna devote to that style, just observational, just long takes of people following, not a lot of character development. You can't, you know, have a scene where the kid like stressing out, being like, "I hate the world." You know, you just. I guess that's just the price you pay. But I, I it works for me. It doesn't for you. You End know, of story, I guess. No, 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 no. I pre- no, I appreciate this, this Ethan, because like I'm obviously struggling with my feelings for this movie, and he, and you know, you know who agrees with you, who feels it was the best picture of the year, was Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks at the Cannes Film Festival that year said, you know, this is hands down the best picture of the year. I don't care what anybody says. I think my problem with the movie is, is I don't want this movie to exist. I, uh, Columbine happened not very far from me, and I actually did have the opportunity to meet a survivor of Columbine, and I, I think it's just one of these movies I just don't want it. To I, I didn't want this movie, and when I finally saw this movie, I think I was so shocked um, by how how GVS did not flinch from showing the Columbine massacre. I think I was kind of horrified and kind of mesmerized at the same time because I can't deny the quality of the filmmaking. Um, but this is a film like I I want to defend, but I also I'm just not comfortable with the film. Basically, it was kind of weird too seeing the blonde kid from this movie in Transformers. <laughs> I remember seeing Transformers in the theater, and being like, is that the guy from Elephant? <laughs> 
Is he really blonde? I mean, it seemed like it was really bleached. Is he? Is he genuinely blonde? Uh, I I don't know. I'm not his agent. Okay, just curious. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know either. Um, all right. Well, let's just jump on to Jerry. Um, this is my favorite Gus Van Sant film, hands down. Um, I remember seeing this in the theater, and I think when the movie started, there were maybe about twelve people there. And when the lights came up, I think it was me and one other person. Um, I love everything about this film, and and I don't necessarily even want to talk about the film in terms of what it is at length because I don't want to scare off anybody who'd be curious to see this film. Um, I guess the short version of that I'll throw out really quick before we kind of analyze the film is that uh, it's Casey Affleck and Matt Damon playing two young men who are lost in the wilderness. That's the setup and the film. Um, It's based on a true story, uh, particularly the ending. And yes, the film does have an ending and it's, uh, I think it's every bit as potent and as powerful as it needs to be. Um, I think this is Gus Van Sant's magnum opus in terms of what he is capable of in terms of applying his style and applying the, the elements of cinema that he, that he loves and that, that is very dear to him. Um, this is a film that I think just watching it on a, on a stupid level, just watching the movie, I think is completely hypnotic and calming even. Um, but I think this is a movie that is full of genuine, genuine beauty. It understands the possibilities of cinema that frustrate people because on one hand, people go, why the heck would Andy Warhol do a movie just called Empire where it's just a, sh- a static shot of this Empire State Building? And why would he do a movie called you know, Sleep where it's just somebody sleeping? But then you realize like, it's a good thing that these movies are made because they show – like the fact that these movies exist show what cinema is capable of doing, whether you like it or not. And I think Jerry is another one of those films. You may not like Van Sant's approach, but it's so unique and I think – so daring and so perfect for this sort of film. I think it's sort of this existential, existential thriller. Really, um, I watch this film and I'm, I'm filled with more suspense than a lot of films that are very manipulative about their suspense. I, I love this movie. This was this is my pick for one of the best films of 2003. I like it too, but I, I guess to get into the specific scenes, I, I like. I particularly take the scene where it's. Um, the two of them they're walking through the desert like kind of like almost in sync behind each other and there's like this sound this sound design yeah. is insane in that scene it's like it's yeah like that scene or the the rock scene yeah yeah i like i feel bad i'm like kind of like the chris farley show be like oh that was awesome but uh <laughs> yeah i i it's a pretty i guess and this is the this this and uh, what the other film we'll get to there this is his death trilogy right. and it deals with that theme pretty interestingly yeah i'm sorry and, we should have we should have mentioned that before and yeah this is yeah definitely part of the trilogy and uh, i though a funny anecdote about this movie uh, about the style of it i went, i remember uh, when i watched it i paused it to go to the bathroom and i came back and it was like it was like a really static shot, and it was like, man, this shot is going on for a long time. But you know, I guess that's just the style of the movie. <laughs> then I realized I hadn't unpaused the movie, <laughs> so I just like it just felt so naturally like a shot that would be in the movie. <laughs> it's perfect, perfect. Um, there's a there's a shot in this film that I think they do something better than than Danny Boyle did in 127 Hours, a film I really like. Um, but there's a scene in the film where it's this crazy angle where it's looking directly we're, – we're basically the point of view of a map and we're looking up at Casey Affleck and Ben Affleck – excuse me, Casey Affleck and Matt Damon, sorry, as they're trying to figure out where they are and where they got lost. And you're basically seeing their thought process of where they are 
and how they can get back to the car and where they've been. And the way that scene is shot and done, it reminds me of the scene, of course, in 127 Hours where, where James Franco is thinking back to, to where he is and where his car is and all that. And I think it's done in a, in a very, in a, such, a, such a more poetic way the way that Van Sant did it, and in a way that has stayed with me. And every time I go on hikes, every time I go on hikes, I think of this film. Um, and I, But I appreciate what you said, Ethan, too, because, I mean, you know, it, it really is kind of a movie of moments. You kind of have to talk about it the way you're talking about it. I mean, it really is, you know, it's, uh, it has scenes that are very static, but it has scenes where there's so much going on. There's so much at stake. I mean, like, the moment where Affleck is, is considering jumping off that rock it's a scary moment because, like, I mean, if he breaks his leg, they're screwed. They're completely and utterly screwed. Not only they lost, but, like, he'll be a dead man, no question. So, like, the implications of what's going to happen there are really suspenseful. And I think the scene that always scared me the most, like, that always made me feel so unsettled watching the film is the scene where they're on a mountaintop and the camera pans and looks out at what they're seeing and you really feel like, my God, where the heck is their car? Where is the parking lot? Where are they? They're never going to get out of there. It looks like they are literally like in this, in this, in this wasteland of beauty where there's no escape. Anyway, I love Jerry. Um, last Days. We talked a lot about Last Days a few weeks ago. Um, but yeah, it, it, it does thematically feel completely in touch. I mean, it really obviously feels like it exists not only from the same filmmaker, but the same world as Elephant and, and Jerry. It certainly does. <laughs> anything, because uh, we talked a lot about it, I think, like the last episode. Anything else you want to add about Last Days? I mean, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, uh, again, with the whole queer cinema thing, there's a scene with two guys getting it on that is so just frankly dealt with. That's pretty interesting. And... Uh, the boys to men scene is classic. <laughs> and no, also, it's yeah. pretty interesting. There's some good cameos in it, too. Like, Harmony Kareen also has a cameo in it. And uh, Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth has a cameo in it. And I remember thinking, you know, she's a, she's a pretty attractive woman for her age. What about you? Do you think she's she's got it going on still? I, try, I, I saw this film when it came out. I don't remember who she plays. Who does she play in the film? She plays like the, I think it's like his manager or something he comes to visit him and like tells him, you know, you should write another album and see your daughter and stuff like that. Hmm. No, I don't remember. <laughs> I need to, I need to go back and see this film. What I think what really stayed with me were some of those tracking shots, you know, those, those shots of these, these figures walking into nature and being kind of consumed by the nature that they're in. Um, and I, and Michael Pitt's performance, I thought, you know, I don't know how accurate it is necessarily. Um, I think only Courtney Love could tell us that, but I thought I thought his performance was wonderful considering it was obvious that he was playing Cobain. Yeah, I I think it's pretty too. Uh, it's pretty awesome how close they match the Nirvana sound too. Yeah. Like the scene where, uh, yeah, like I said, the, my favorite scene in the movie where this the steady cam shot where it's pulling outside the house and he's like, we're practicing. Like it sounds so dead on. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Definitely had that Nirvana sound. Um, yeah, Dave's still like, we gotta, we gotta roll this. We're over an hour and a half, so we need to get going on this. <laughs> All right, Paranoid Park. I love Paranoid Park. I loved it. It's it, yeah. I think I will drop the M bomb on this movie. Oh, masterpiece. <laughs> I really like this film a lot. Um, you know, and and again, to use the word in a positive note, it is very pretentious and self indulgent. But my gosh. Those slow motion shots of the skateboards like soaring through the air, I thought are so beautiful. I just found myself, I don't even care what this movie is about anymore. I just want to watch it. It's so beautiful, this film. And moments of it are so shocking. I thought, you know, kind of like what I was talking about before with Elephant. I mean, I thought it was kind of frustrating at times that we didn't really, you know, to use this word, to probe the mind of this young man. 
um, who committed this this atrocious crime by accident. But at the same time, I thought it really created the atmosphere around him so perfectly, and created the kind of the kind of the tone of of what it's like to walk around feeling very numb and and disinterested in general, but also to have this this terrible secret he's carrying with him. Um, this, go ahead. I would say, yeah, the movie visually represents his psych- his psychology. Yeah. But, yeah. But uh, my favorite scene in this movie, and this is going to sound weird, but where he's being questioned by a police and they're asking him what he did. He said, I went to Subway. And he goes, <laughs> like, in depth about what he ordered from Subway. Right. And it's just, it's like this non-actor doing it. It's like, just, it's and how he just, like, keeps the camera on him and how he's just going on about the sandwich he got, I think is brilliant. And again, how you're saying the skate, uh, all the scenes, how like, I hate skaters so much, but it makes that so like beautiful and poetic, I think is like such a huge achievement. And again, the uh, shower scene is like utterly transcendent. Yes. Yes. And and, there's a lot of like non actors in the movie and it all, it works beautifully. Yeah. And uh, on this, he used Christopher Doyle as he did the cinematography for this, and uh, he usually uses Harris Savetti's. Harris Savetti's is one of the best cinematographers in the world, but Christopher Doyle is equally as good. And the only other Van Sant film he had done was the Psycho remake. Okay. And this ends like it. Um, they look. That's why it looks different than like his Death trilogy, but they are just as artistically successful. So yeah, I love this film. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. And I gotta say, the the accidental death scene. Um, horrified me the music choice was perfect but the imagery i was just uh, you know maybe just i mean i've seen that kind of thing in zombie movies before but to see it in this film i i was just just aghast at what i saw yeah yeah this is a great film and i and i think uh you know in terms of his his art films i think it's definitely definitely worth a huge look and uh finally i mean there's one more film that's coming to come out at the con film festival this year the Re- film restless with mia wasikowska um, we'll talk about Milk, uh, the film which won Sean Penn an Academy Award for playing Harvey Milk. Um, yeah, thoughts on this one, Ethan? I uh, I really like it. I think it's just as good as Will Goodwill Hunting, and it's like that. It his his direction like become makes it not just takes away so much of that potential overt sentimentality from it, but still it is still very powerful. And again, uh, the use of archive footage in it is brilliant. Um, and I think having like not to bash Brokeback Mountain because that's a great movie, but I think having a movie like this made by an actual gay man gives it a bit more of a I don't want to say accurate touch, but just gives it a bit more like a different feeling. I think. Yes, uh, I agree. Yeah, I, I I guess we have to wrap up, but I, yeah, I think this was one of the best films of its year. It's it's definitely I think the best he can do as a mainstream filmmaker. Yeah, and I think it's a much better film actually than Brokeback Mountain for the reasons you said. Um, and because it, it avoids, for the most part, like, you know, it, yes, it's, it's kind of a feel-good story with a tragic ending. I mean, there is something kind of, it could fit within the crevice of mainstream, but the performances are everything. I mean, I mean Sean Penn, I frequently forgot who I was watching. Um, I love his performance. James Franco and Josh Brolin are fantastic in this movie. Um, everybody who is like a, a member of, of Harvey Milk's team and works with him, I, I thought they were all just, everybody was perfectly cast. Even that kid from High School Musical, I thought, amazingly, was quite good in it. Um, my only objection to this film, and this is so outside of what we've been talking about, because this is not a not a slam against Van Sant, who I think did a fine film. It is a great film, um, just because the documentary, The Times of Harvey Milk, for me, that's the whole story. I, I felt like there were things in Milk that they should have included that they didn't. Um, and for me, The Times of Harvey Milk felt like a real epic on the subject matter, whereas I thought this was a great movie about the man, but not 
not quite as there are just all sorts of things I think some opportunities that they missed in terms of the narrative and the storytelling but in terms of performances I can't can't go wrong and, and it did a wonderful thing I mean Van Sant really did recreate the atmosphere of San Francisco and Castro Street at the time um, yeah fine film fine film cool we're done we are we're done <laughs> Yay! Oh, I wanted to mention something. I was looking at his IMDb. He's directed a Hanson video. Which one? I think it was like Weird. That's what it was called. Isn't it weird? I know that song. He also directed the video to Under the Bridge by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's a great video. Yes. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Cool. Has anyone ever read his uh, book? Pink. I have not read his book. I want to. It's about River Phoenix, isn't it? Or, or rather, excuse me, it was dedicated to River Phoenix. Yeah, I've never read Pink. One day. All right. I read Oliver Stone's book, and uh, I wish I had, and that was a waste of time. He wrote it when he was much younger and completely stoned and thinking he was James Joyce. Mm. All right, then. Well, and, and, and Ethan, you came up with a brilliant idea for our topic next week. Well, I'll, I'll, I, it's so good, I'm going to let you say what it is. Oh, yeah, I would die for you, yeah. Holy, if you want me to. We are tackling the films of Prince. <laughs> this should be fun. Who's to say we are not daring and ahead of the curve here on ScreenGeeks.com? There you go. Uh, let's go ahead and talk about what's coming out. And then I have a bit of news that just literally, literally just broke that I want to talk about, too. So. All right. Uh, this week in theaters, next week rather in theaters, excuse me, uh, Russell Brand is the voice of Hop. This is the CGI family bunny comedy. I keep forgetting this was coming out. I want to see Rio. I think Rio looks good, but like Hop, I just want to... Well, that's because Rio avoid. has an Angry Birds game named after him, so... Rio, I think, looks funny. I mean, the, the trailer to Hop, I mean, what, he's a, he's a bunny who plays the drums. We'll Yippee. see. Uh, Duncan Jones' new thriller, Source Code, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Michelle Monaghan. And the new film from James Wan, I believe. Yes, uh, the, one of the filmmakers of Saw, Insidious, starring... Who's in people that? People who are probably going to die. Lots of people are going to die. I think... Is Vera Farmiga in that? I can't remember. Anyway. I think Patrick Wilson's in it. Patrick Wilson. Thank you. Patrick Wilson and I think Olivia Wilde. Newton-John. <laughs> now, that would be awesome. Yeah, so it's Hop, Source Code, and Insidious. In limited release, you've got Trust, the film directed by David Schwimmer, starring Clive Owen. It's about internet sexual predators. That looks like a pretty pretty heavy movie, actually. Um, Super, the new film from James Gunn, starring Rain Wilson. Rubber, because you've got to keep your eye on those tires. And then finally, uh, opening wide, unfortunately, the PG-13 version of The King's Speech. So, you, you, you mean uh, of The King's speech something for everyone this weekend yeah especially those who like censorship because apparently those Weinsteins loves them some censorship I remember watching Rain Man with my parents my mom was like you know Barry these are words you should not say but these characters would say them so and this movie is so magnificent I'm gonna let you watch it like yeah that's how I probably would have watched the King speech as a kid as opposed to going into the theater and you know let's be honest how many kids are gonna be lining up I mean we're not gonna have midnight screenings of the King speech for the kids crowd because no. it's PG-13 now. I can't imagine who would want to see this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Let's know what's coming out in, uh, on, on home video next week. On home video. Let's see. We got Tron Legacy. Okay. There's... Oh, good night. Okay. So there's a DVD-only version of, I think, both Tron and Tron Legacy. 
There's the Blu-ray DVD combo of each Tron and Tron Legacy. There's the five-disc edition of Tron Legacy, which has the 3D version of Tron Legacy, the Blu-ray, the DVD, the digital copy, and the Blu-ray of Tron. And you can get the same thing in a crappy little identity disc for like 60 or 70 bucks. Does it come with the Daft Punk soundtrack like, no. like in a separate disc? Because that, for me, would make sense. No, that would make too much sense. Way too much sense. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Don Treader. I like this movie. I think it's the best one. They keep getting better with every film. Hmm. For me, they're all two-star movies. I don't know which one I like more, but the special effects were very good, very good. Um, and you know, they are going to make another one too. They just announced that. Yeah, they're, it's going to go be, ahead. They're not in the silver chair though. They're doing the magician's nephew, which is kind of dumb. But okay. yeah, because isn't the silver silver chair the next one on the list? Yeah, it should be. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Very strange. Well, they're making these movies are making enough money to keep going. Um, available on Blu-ray, Taxi Driver, Steven Spielberg's AI, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, uh, the Peter Pan version by by Paul Hogan that I like a lot, um, Benny and June with with uh, Johnny Depp, Mystic Pizza starring Julia Roberts, and in his film debut, Matt Damon, um, The Cove because you want to see the uh, the bloody water with with clarity that only Blu-ray can bring you, Babe nominated for Best Picture in 1995, and Justice for All that's the one with Al Pacino where he goes No, you're out of order, Judge. And then finally, The People versus Larry Flint, directed by Milos Forman. Uh, then uh, on regular DVD, you got Little Fockers. Feels like that's still in theaters. Uh, Friday Night Lights season five, um, a wonderful movie, one of my favorite films of last year. I love you, Philip Morris, with Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor, and Casino Jack, the film about Jack Abramoff, which stars uh, Kevin Spacey, Barry Pepper, and is the last film directed by George Hickenlooper. There you go. And uh, the the last bit of news, it literally just broke. Apparently, like Zack Snyder was really sad about the fact that he got his butt kicked by Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Did he? Oh yeah, Diver <laughs> Wimpy Kid looks like the numbers are in twenty four point four million. Sucker Punch nineteen. Ah, oh, beautiful, beautiful. Diver Wimpy Kid made its budget back and not even close for Sucker Punch. Oh, beautiful. Dear Warner Brothers, please consider the box office results of Sucker Punch when you consider giving a three hundred million dollar franchise film to Zack Snyder. Sincerely, of, Barry Worst. <laughs> speaking of said franchise film. Uh, because he's so down in the dumps, he decided to go ahead and announce that Amy Adams is going to be playing Lois Lane. Wow. I like Amy Adams. I, I don't know if she's the right fit. The right fit? She, she's, she's got spunk. That's true. She's a great know. actress. She is. She's an outstanding actress. What's she doing in a Zack Snyder film? Oh. Well, let's who, see. Who, who will be playing the Richard Pryor role? <laughs> Chris Tucker. Oh. No, no. Oh. Well, that's only if that's true. You're right. That would only be if it was um, See, Brad be, Radner. Yeah, it's going to be Dane Cook. Uh, In blackface? Yes. <laughs> With a fake afro. Okay. Uh, Actually, I can see doing it. Ice Cube. Hmm. He's got good comic timing. He does. He does. I'd, oh, shoot. Now, um, Aldous Hodge is probably who I'd pick. He's the guy who plays... Um, she plays Hardison on Leverage. If you really want to get someone who can play off the funny quite well, I th- his timing is incredibly good. Hmm. What about Eddie Griffin? <laughs> what else is Man, he that, that ship has sailed, Barry. Oh, I like Eddie Griffin. I'm holding a candle for Eddie Griffin. Okay, so, yeah. I, I have no idea what to think about that. It, it doesn't quite strike me as right for some reason. But Who's Jimmy Olsen? Do you I know yet? They haven't. No. Let's see what nerd oh, fanboy. Wasn't there actor? some movie with Eddie Griffin where it was like, was it was it Orlando Jones and they like play, like they played guys who like switched identities or something? That's Juana Man. No, no, D- Dave, look this up. Oh, oh he's, oh, wait, 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 you talking about Double Take? Yeah, Double Take. 
Yeah, that's the one because I remember that I saw it in the theater. I actually saw it at a previous screening, and I remember that's the one where uh, he because Orlando Jones is like the more uptight African American who's like not in touch with his blackness. So there's this scene in the film. I'm I'm just quoting the movie here, not making a statement. There's a scene in the movie. I'm not not picking on Orlando Jones, who I like, but there's a scene in the movie where Eddie Griffin like like tries to teach him how to be black. It's kind of like kind of like a, a reverse of the scene from uh, from from Silver Streak with with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. But anyway, in the scene, they're in a train car, just like Silver Streak, and Eddie Griffin's like, "Okay, I want to hear you like, you know, give do the Schlitz malt liquor." And and uh, and Alana <laughs> Jones like, "I want some Schlitz malt liquor." You know, it's like this scene that's like really it's supposed to be like the the moment of hilarity for the film and it's just it's one of the many scenes I included in my book about about modern day minstrel wow. shows. Yeah, yeah. That, that, Man, that. those those two guys, Orlando Jones and Eddie Griffin, where have they been? Eddie Griffin, I see on the Comedy Central roast every once in a while, he pops up, and Orlando Jones, I mean, yeah, he was like in everything for a while. He was he, everything. He makes seven up yours. Well, yeah, he was on that. I mean, he was in the remake of the Time Machine. I mean, he was in Evolution. Um, uh, All the good movies. <laughs> that's the problem. He did too many movies like that, and I think. I laughed at Evolution, I'll admit it. Yeah, yeah, there are parts of Evolution I liked. Um, yeah, I, don't, I can't think of the last thing I've seen him in. Because, like, Mad TV went off the air, like, what, four or five years ago? He was on House. Mm. Oh. The last, at- the last movie, Cirque de Freak. Ouch. Oh, with John C. Riley, man. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. All right. Wow. Damn. Wow, we ended the show on the note of Orlando Bloom, Where Are You? Yeah, I think Orlando Jones. Orlando Jones. Well, hey, Orlando Bloom, where is he? What happened? To the, he's the he's in Orlando? the Three Musketeers. Really? Yeah, apparently. Really? The 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 what? Script Anderson one? Yeah. Exactly. I didn't yes. see him in the trailer. Uh, I didn't either, but yeah, he, he's in it. Um, you know, I actually have an email we can read. We have we have mail. People have are listening mail. to this. Yes. You think Holy they're still crap. listening to this? Or do you think they've probably played? not by now? But you know, well, yeah. let, let me just. <laughs> Let me just get to pull this thing up. Um, After my pattering on uh, my my useless pattering on Jerry, I think they they, they, they just said, you know, I didn't know this. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Um, all right. Well, here, here we go. I'll just go ahead and read this. Hey, Screen Geeks. Long time no talk. I know. Been wrapped up in real life and stuff and blah. Uh, so episode 142 genuinely made me want to call in again. So I cannot... I cannot, so I will write because we're still. I'm working on getting us a new phone service. Uh, you brought up some interesting things I need to comment on. So Chipotle, yeah, I find them to be a bit overrated. I would go to Kido before Chipotle, and I would go to Moe's before either of those. No, that rhymed. Yeah, no, Ethan, not the Simpsons bar, the awesome burrito place. I believe to be far superior to Chipotle. Uh, he, he was waiting for the, the Moe's tavern joke. All right, uh, Barry, Josie and the Pussycats didn't work for you. That's okay. The, may, the film may not be as daring as it could be, but for a mainstream flick at the time, it was going. It was somewhat daring. I like the soundtrack. The movie was more than I thought it was going to be. I guess what I'm saying is that orange is the new pink. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. Uh, now, Waxwork 2. Yeah, not that good. <laughs> the original Waxwork is much better and does not deal with time travel, but people stepping into a Waxwork display and actually being in that world. Plus, it has Patrick McNee on screen and not just as a bird's voice. <laughs> that's right. Wow. That's right. Dave, the sleeping bag death in Jason X, a silly little film, was a nod to Jason versus Carrie. I, I mean, um, part seven. It was edited down so they wouldn't, so they wouldn't go over the top in ten. Uh, let's see. As for Battle of Los Angeles, it was the cutscenes from a shooter. Not great and not bad. Lest we forget our terminology, I felt kind of Wolverine about it. Dang. All right. Uh, now to Mr. Damon. He's an actor that grows on you, especially if you watch his early stuff when the DiCaprio comparison was rather valid. 
The film that made me notice his acting ability was Rounders. My expectations were exciting, exciting watching him and Edward Norton working together. He then showed that. He, uh, yeah, let me try that again. He then showed that was not a fluke with an amazing turn in Dogma. Oh, I also happen to really, really enjoy t- Titan AE. In fact, I should watch it again. I think it's a very underrated flick. So let me end this novel by saying I'd never stopped listening. Thanks for some laughs in some of my dark times, and congrats on the expansion of the site. Jack is awesome, and the Screen Geeks Empire is growing. Your show quite simply rocks. P.S. I liked Paul. I gave it seven pants. That would be from Mr. Billy Flynn over at Geek Radio Daily. Thank you so much. Wow, terrific email. And I love that it, it initially began with, with Qdoba versus Chipotle, but ended on Titan AE. Yeah, yeah. Well, Qdoba is vastly superior in every way, just because you, there's nothing called Qdoba way. I'm well, there is the issue of food poisoning, which recently uh, did uh, over. <sighs> okay, so I guess I'm going back to Taco Bell. Gosh. No, Taco Bell. I'm kidding. No. I'm kidding. no. For the- You'll be a dead man in a week if you go back to Taco Bell. Okay, I already watched Super Size Me, okay? Ooh, we shouldn't say that, should we? We should, we shouldn't, should we not be bashing like corporate entities, especially if we want like more sponsors? Yeah, well, like they're. Because Taco Bell is crunchy, delicious. <laughs> there it is. All right, then. If Screen Geeks ever get sponsored by the KFC Double Down, I, I know I've done something right. <laughs> We should make our own ad for it, actually. You know, if everybody who, like, has a double down in a week would, like, listen to this show once, we would have so many listeners. We'd have, like, three at least. <laughs> As opposed to one. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Billy. Yeah. Um. Wow. There it is. And, and he's going to be up at Starfest, too, which Starfest oh, is coming. fantastic. I should mention real quick, the final guest list is out. We've got Marina Backer and we've got Mark Shepard, um, Jonathan Frakes, uh, Jeffrey Combs, but Je- uh, Peter Mayhew just got added, which is kind of interesting. Chewie will be there. I- I'm thinking I should go buy a bootleg of the of this holiday special and ask him to sign it. Hmm. I wish you luck. <laughs> you might have a thing or two to say about that. But there yeah, you go. Yeah. There you go. Uh, if you want to email us, by all means do. You can shoot us an email to podcast, uh, Barry, Ethan, or Dave, all at screengeeks.com. Next week, we'll be, we will be talking about the Bant Dance some, which should be lots of fun. And, uh, is that the only Prince thing you know? No, no, but it's fun to say still. Uh, until then, this is Dave. This is Jerry. Whoa, Jerry. 